Hi, listeners. This is Rob Whitman, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours and the usual host of the show. This episode was recorded in February 2022 and released in April, but I'm recording this new intro on the 1st of December 2022. That's because, as you may be aware, Sam Bankman-Fried's company, FTX, filed for bankruptcy on the 11th of November. I won't go into detail about that here because plenty of information is still coming out and none of this is something that I'm an expert on. But this bankruptcy is far from a normal case of a fast-moving tech startup folding. The reason that event is such a disaster and a disgrace is that if reporting in the Financial Times and Wall Street Journal and other newspapers is accurate, customer deposits held in FTX that were meant to be safely held for users to withdraw whenever they wanted uh, were not being safely held in that way at all. Rather, if newspaper reports are to be believed, those deposits were being used to make risky investments, investments which went poorly and left FTX owing billions of dollars more than it had. There's a lot we don't know about what happened and why, but regardless, even on the most charitable interpretation that I can currently imagine, what Sam Bankman-Fried and some of his colleagues apparently did or allowed to happen inside FTX is simply awful. I've said more about that in a statement released on the 80,000 Hours podcast feed on the 23rd of November, 2022, which you can go find and listen to if you'd like. It's titled Rob's Thoughts on the FTX Bankruptcy. Naturally, all these subsequent events make it painful for me to listen to this interview now. When we recorded this interview in February, Sam's stake in FTX and other companies seemed to be worth billions of dollars. Uh, And I asked him about the FTX Future Fund, which he was in the process of setting up, with the goal of funding projects that might help solve problems we regularly talk about on this show. Uh, Nuclear war, pandemics, AI being deployed in harmful ways, factory farming, uh, and so on. My main goal in this interview was to learn more about the thinking of Sam and grant makers at the Future Fund so that listeners could contemplate uh, whether they ought to apply for a grant to start a project of their own or join a related project someone else was launching. Sadly, all of that uh, no longer applies. Uh, the entire staff of the Future Fund resigned on the 11th of November. I regret uh, if any of you applied for a grant from the Future Fund uh, as a result of what Sam said on this episode. Some of the rest of the interview has now also uh, been rendered irrelevant. Um, There are also times that Sam's replies didn't make total sense to me, uh, but I gave him the benefit of the doubt, uh, which I obviously uh, wouldn't today. As you can imagine, I have reservations about this episode, but we are leaving it up for subscribers who would like to go through it, uh, even knowing all of the above. In the episode description, you can find links to the statement from the Future Fund staff when they resigned, as well as 80,000 Hours' statement about the FTX bankruptcy. One other note is that the discussion of declining returns in philanthropy in this episode, and my brief written summary of it uh, that went along with the episode, was confusing in a couple of ways. I was very focused on highlighting one point that I thought was particularly useful and neglected, which resulted in us brushing past some uh, important caveats and clarifications. I've written up a post explaining what I actually think about those topics and how I think the discussion in this episode could have been better, which we'll link to in the show notes. All right, here's the interview. Today, I'm speaking with Sam Bankman-Fried. Sam is the CEO of FTX, one of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchanges, which he founded in 2019. His wealth fluctuates a fair bit, but it is in the tens of billions of dollars, a decent sum for someone still in their 20s and one which lands him firmly among the 100 richest Americans. More interestingly than that, though, Sam plans to give away almost all of the money he's made, and indeed a desire to make money to give to charities and other projects that improve the world was the main reason he went into business in the first place. 
After studying physics at MIT, Sam first worked at the trading firm Jane Street, intending to earn to give for impactful charities. He then broke away to start his own private trading firm focused on cryptocurrencies, and then moved on to try to build the world's best cryptocurrency trading platform. That effort turned into FTX, which now handles tens of billions of dollars in trading volume every day, and has quarterback Tom Brady and supermodel Giselle Boonchen, I'm told that's how it's pronounced, as brand ambassadors, among others. On top of all that, he is a longtime vegan, was the second largest public donor to Joe Biden's election campaign, took the Give What We Can pledge in 2016, sleeps out on a beanbag at his office, continues to live with roommates, and describes himself as a utilitarian. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Sam. Thanks for having me. I hope to get to chat about your plans to give away the money you've made and your views on developing crypto assets as a way to do good. But first, as always, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? Yeah. So, you know, the things I'm doing day to day, I mean, it varies quite a bit. Like it, it, there's just like almost no relationship between like my day to day a year ago and like my day to day today. And I I do sort of think that's going to keep changing, but you know, right now, probably the the biggest things I've been working on and sort of like the the crypto side are are regulatory environments, Hmm. you know, and this is just like actually an enormous difference from now versus a year ago in the crypto environment when a year ago, there just like wasn't that much emphasis on, you know, the regulatory environment. Most regulators were were only just starting to think about it. Today, it is by far the most defining feature of the crypto industry is the stance of various players from a regulatory standpoint. And, you know, I'm probably spending more than half of my time on regulatory efforts. I'm going to, you know, DC basically every couple of weeks to talk with, you know, regulators and, and policymakers. And, you know, it's, it's just become like by far the biggest thing in the industry. So that, that's one piece of it, but there's, there's just like an enormous sort of long tail of things that I'm working on as well. You know, everything from like project managing various things that the company's doing to, you know, recruiting and hiring and, you know, media and PR and, and then sort of overarching all of that, like trying to make sure we don't become a shit show uh, as a company, <laughs> which is probably like my single biggest job. Yeah, I think that's often a huge challenge for anyone running any any large organization, especially one that's grown pretty rapidly as uh, as FTX has. Yeah. yeah, I guess speaking of regulation briefly, you gave a bunch of testimony in front of the US Senate in December, right? Yep. I quickly skimmed over that. It was actually pretty good. I remember a bunch of congressional testimony that people gave. Well, your testimony was good, but also just in general, the conversation seemed like surprisingly sophisticated. I I can remember people from social media companies testifying in front of the Senate and it just being a bit ridiculous how little knowledge the, uh, you know, uh, Congress people had about even the most basic things to do with the internet. But here it's like, it seems like we've come many steps forward. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's just a really enormous difference, frankly, between you know, where we are today, where we were, you know, even just like, you know, six months, a year ago. But I've also been like really happy overall with like how the regulatory conversations have been going and 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 specifically like when it's testifying, like, you know, the questions were good. People cared. They're trying to make progress on the issues. Um, it was like a, a really constructive environment. I think that regulators in industry and Democrats and Republicans were all on like at least kind of moderately similar pages. You know, I don't know if I want to say exactly the same page, but like they felt like they're from the same book at least maybe. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because it's a slightly new topic. It hasn't, people haven't formed into partisan trenches on this yet. They don't know what their ideological position is meant to be on this. Oh yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely a big part of it. Like people, you know, they'll figure out how to be partisan eventually and then everything <laughs> will stop. And But right now they're just confused. Help, 
Yeah, for now. And that's like a lot of what I'm trying to do also. I mean, and you think we're actually in pretty big danger six months ago falling into that trap. Like Mm. there is this sort of like moment when like all of a sudden everyone's like, oh shit, it just being political. Like the the party alignment is now known. Mm. And, And I think that posed like really big risk to the industry, frankly. And I'm really happy that that it seems like at least for now we've sort of avoided that and and stayed you know decently bipartisan. I think the industry was I mean at fault for a lot of this becoming um, looking like it was going to be more politicized, just mm. like not interfacing well with policymakers and regulators. And and I think especially on the left, there is a lot of skepticism because of that. Mm. But I, I think things have turned around quite a bit. Yeah. Let's back up a bit and help to set the scene for listeners, though. I guess, what motivated you to take such a high-risk, high-return approach to doing good as starting first your own crypto trading firm and then also just trying to saying we don't like the exchanges we're operating on, I'm going to start my own crypto exchange and try to try to compete there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this probably won't be super shocking to you, but you know, when you think about things from well, maybe taking a step back, like, <laughs> um, expected if, values. Your goals, <laughs> if your goal is to kind of have impact on the world and, and in particular, if your goal is to maximize the amount of impact that you have on the world, I think that has like pretty strong implications for what you end up doing, you know, among other things, like if you really are trying to maximize your impact, then, you know, at what point do you start hitting decreasing marginal returns? Like at what point have you like done so much that there's no, well, in terms of doing good, there's no such thing. Just like more good is more good. It's not like, oh, you did some good. Good doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. Right. But like they think you think, oh, well, okay, fine. But how about money? Like at what point do you have like, so are you able to donate so much that money doesn't matter anymore? And the answer is like, I don't exactly know, but you're thinking about the scale of, you know, the world there, right? Like at what point are you out of ways for the world to spend money to change, you know? And there's like, what, 8 billion people, right? Government budgets run in the you know tens of trillions per year like it's it's a really massive scale and and like you take one disease and that's like a billion a year you know to like help mitigate the effects of like one tropical disease Hmm. so uh, it's unclear exactly what the answer is but it's at least billions you know i think it's like at least billions per year probably and so at least a hundred billion overall before you know you risk running out of good things to do with money or something yeah and i think that's actually like a really powerful fact like that means that you know you should be I think you should be like pretty aggressive with what you're doing and, 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 you know, really trying to hit home runs rather than just have some impact because the upside is just absolutely enormous. Yeah, I guess our instincts about how much risk to take on are trained on the fact that in day-to-day life, the upside is for us as individuals is super limited that yeah. you know, even if even if you become a millionaire, there's just like only so much like incrementally better that your life is going to be and getting wiped out is very bad by contrast. But when it comes to doing good, you don't hit declining returns like that at all, or like not really on the scale of the amount of money that any one person can make. So you kind of want to just be risk neutral or, or you know, open to say, I mean, as an individual yeah. to, to make a bet where it's like, I'm going to gamble my $10 billion and either get $20 billion or $0 with equal probability would be would be madness. But from an altruistic point of view, it's not so it's not so crazy. Maybe that's like, that's an even bet, but you should be like much more open to making like radical gambles like that. Completely agree. And I think that is just a big piece of it of like, your strategy is very different if you're optimizing for making at least a million dollars versus if you're optimizing for just linear, you know, amount that you make. And, and, and I think, you know, yeah, one piece of that is like, yeah, Alameda is like a successful trading firm. Like, why bother with FTX? And the answer is like, there's a big opportunity there. And, you know, I wanted to, to go after it and see what we could do there. And, you know, it's not like 
Alameda was, you know, doing well. And so like, what's the point? Cause it's already doing well. Like, no, there's, there's well, and then there's better than well, you know? And like, yeah, there's no reason to stop at just doing well. So when you were, so, so Alameda was the trading firm. When you were considering moving on and instead trying to make a platform, did you kind of formally think, well, here's the probability that we succeed at becoming a major platform. And if we do, then this is the amount of money. So if we multiply it through, here's the expected value. That's, that's higher than the amount I get from sticking with this current plan. So I'm going to switch. Yeah, that's basically right. Okay. Um, and <laughs> I think that's, that is effectively the, the, the math that we went through. And, you know, basically, I mean, I think the core of it was like, all right, what are the odds? You know, what are the odds we'd be successful? And I certainly can't say with confidence, you know, the odds are exactly X, but, but like we felt pretty confident we could build a good platform like that. I think we put like 80% at least Mm. that we could like build a better platform than the existing ones, but I had no fucking clue how to get a user, right? Like, okay, so Mm. you build a good, but it's like, it's a consumer facing product, right? Like building a good platform isn't worth anything if no one ever uses it. I didn't even know where to start there. So I was at, I was, I think the most optimistic at the company, you know, when, when we were thinking of starting FTX and I was at 20% that it would be at all successful. Okay. And that was the most optimistic of anyone. And, and so why do it then? If it was like, you know, we're already successful and 80% to fail hmm. at what we're going to do. And the answer is, well, you know, there are numbers above, uh, there, there are big numbers out there, right? Like 20% <laughs> sure. Okay. That that's, you know, whatever you divide by five, how much are these platforms making a few billion a year, hmm. you know, 20% chance of success. Like, all right, that puts you at what, like 400 million a year or something like of, of, uh, if, if you became like the biggest, you know, like if, if you thought that like conditional on success, we definitely were the biggest, which you probably shouldn't think, maybe discount that some, maybe things a hundred million a year, maybe things like a billion dollars value or something. Well, th- th- those are big numbers, right? Like hmm. even if we're probably going to fail in expectation, I think it was actually still like quite, quite good. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll come back to your personal story and how you've made various career decisions uh, over the course of the last decade later on. But I guess I know what you're like, Sam, and how maximizing the good that you do has been kind of this driving passion for you since at least undergrad and I expect probably before that at, at high school. But I've seen some folks out there on Twitter and elsewhere in the media who are kind of skeptical that you're ultimately going to follow through and give away most of the money you've made, yep. as, as, as you say that you will. Yeah. Is there anything you could plausibly say to the audience that might make them more likely to, to believe you and take you seriously? It's a good question. Like, obviously, in the end, I don't know, it's like people's decisions to make for themselves. And, you know, they should treat this with whatever skepticism they think is, is important. But, but you know, what can I say that maybe put some dent to there? I think, you know, one piece of this is like, I mean, it's something I've wanted to do for, you know, decades. Like, it's it's been the most important thing to me. You know, I think, you know, I've given away something like 50 to 100 million so far. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think that's still plausibly in the range where someone would say, oh, yeah, sure, that's just like, you know, whatever. That's cool and all, but like uh, that—that's just like PR. You still got you still got much more than that. Yeah, yeah. And, and and so I think part of my answer is like, all right, let's check in again in a year. You know, mm. like if in a year that number isn't any bigger, then like I think that'll be a bad sign for me. Mm. And I think if, if in a year it's a lot bigger, that'll that'll be a good sign. And I think that is like honestly part of my answer is like, I think it's like hard for me to prove that right now, but but I think that 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 will change over the next year or so, and. You know, I'm optimistic that it will get to a point where, you know, I've given away a lot more than that. And certainly over the next few years. Um, and, and so that's, that's part of it. But, you know, I'd also just like, you know, you can talk to the people who I've, you know, known for a while. Obviously, you know, you're one of them. Um, the people who, you know, who are working with, with me on the EA side and, you know, decide for yourself to some extent yeah. um, how, how serious that, that seems. But I think there are 
like, I don't know, I'm really excited about the people who've been working with me on this. Yeah, yeah. I think one reason why I, why I don't doubt it is I just think about like, well, what do people think the temptation is for you, Sam, that you're going to like get into like having really fast, expensive cars and then like right. buy a yacht and that's going to crop? Like, well, <laughs> you, you could care less about that because like, it would provide like, no benefit to you anyway. <laughs> right. Not not like one fast, expensive car, right? Like just a fleet, of, like 300 of them, you know, <laughs> like so many cars. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would require a pretty major shift in interest on your, on your part. I think so. Because are there any fancy, expensive things that you are tempted by on a, on a, on a selfish level? Or is it kind of just nothing? Yeah. Um, let me think. <laughs> like, I mean, a little bit. I don't know. Kind of like nice apartments. Like, I, I, I don't want to say there's literally nothing, but there's not, not a lot. Like, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not really that much of like a, a consumer exactly. It's yeah. never been what's important to me. And so I think, you know, overall, a nice place to live is, is, <laughs> is just about as far as it gets, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to me, that makes a ton of sense. Kind of the thing that surprises me is that there ever was a time when uh, people got super rich in order to try to spend the money on themselves. It just seems uh, kind of like a waste of time. It does. But anyway, I'd like to focus now on something that you haven't covered in that much detail in other interviews, and which I think listeners will be particularly excited to learn more about, which is exactly your plans for how you're going to try to do the most good with your philanthropy. I guess, yeah, how much money do you expect to be able to give away each year over over the next couple of years if things go well? Yeah, I I think like, you know, obviously like a fair bit of, of uncertainty over exactly how this will be. But but I think the hope is to scale into the like hundreds of millions to billions over the next couple of years and certainly to the billions per year, you know, over the next five to 10 years. Hmm. And obviously a lot of this depends on exactly how well the company goes, right? Like that will depend on on how well it is. But I think like I would be pretty disappointed if it never got to, to you know, if it never reached the point of a billion a year. Yeah, because... Another thing for context, as we were talking about, you're pretty, pretty risk loving as, as an investor <laughs> and a business person. So as a result, how uncertain is the amount that you're ultimately likely to be able to give? Like, you know, what are the odds that it's under 1 billion ultimately, because things really fall apart or alternatively over 50 billion because things go incredibly well? Yeah, I think under 1 billion would be pretty difficult, like something real bad would have to happen. I, I don't want to like say that the odds are like less than like, I certainly wouldn't say they're less than 1% of that. Because I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know like how to think about the tail cases, but I would certainly say less than 10%. Hmm. I think for the odds of like more than 50 billion, I mean, you know, 50, 50, something like that. I don't know. Okay. Sort of making it up. That's a ballpark. Okay. So, so the odds of it getting really low isn't so high, but then there's a substantial kind of upwards tail if FTX continues to grow into all kinds of, of, of other markets. Yeah. yeah. Um, are there any grants that you've yet already made that you're happy to share and kind of proud and happy to talk about? Yeah, I can talk about some of them. And you know, again, all of these are like, we'll see how ultimately all of them end up. Like many of them are still effectively in process, but but I think far enough along that you can start to judge them a little bit. You know, one of the things I've been doing the most on has been pandemic preparedness stuff. And when I say I've been doing things here, I may be being a little bit too generous to myself. Like I've been giving some money, other people have been doing the actual work. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think like basically lobbying Congress and then some states to invest more in preparing for future pandemics has been probably the thing I've, I've like given the most to so far. Mm. And we'll see what ends up happening. Like some of this was, was sort of for things in the Senate infrastructure bill, which now looks like the whole bill might be scuttled. Mm. Um, I think it like prior to that probably had like a couple billion dollars of pandemic spending of impact. Is this the Apollo project that people talk about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so one piece has been, has been you know, pushing for that. And I think probably had, had significant non-trivial impact on, on that happening. There's a similar effort in California right now, which I'm excited and optimistic about. 
And, 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 you know, I think the goal of these are to set up, you know, multi-billion dollar foundations dedicated to it. That's been, that's been sort of like one side of this, uh, you know, some pro-democracy and reform things, which are, I think are still in, in progress and we're going to have to see how those end up, but I, I think we'll probably end up having, having real, at least probabilistic impact. Mm. And, and, and then a bunch of other things where I think are just like way too early to judge. Yeah. Just on the lobbying for the for the pandemic preparation yeah. stuff, I've said on the show before, don't belabor the point that it's just a bit crazy that after the US has suffered trillions of dollars in costs from, from COVID-19, that it's hard to rustle up a few billion dollars to actually prevent the next pandemic from causing that kind of damage. Completely insane. I guess if you're on the pointy end of actually trying to get the, the bill passed, like what is happening on the other side? Like what's what's the case against? Yeah, there isn't exactly a case against, which which is sort of interesting, right? Like, who is the pro-pandemic legislator? <laughs> um, who is on the side of COVID? Um, Did a virus write this bill? Right, exactly, right? Like, it's, you know, on the one hand, you see the humans arguing, you know, for, for X, but on the other hand, the viruses are, are pushing back. Um, <laughs> the basic answer is, like, that the default is nothing happens. And so, like, a draw is a loss. And, you know, the momentum to push for something to change has to be big enough to, to overcome inertia. Mm. And like, so in particular, like, I mean, we're seeing right now the whole fucking infrastructure bill might not pass. That's like, it is hard to get anything passed. And, you know, when, when the whole bill might not pass, first of all, that's one way it could fail, right? So there's like fails to be alignment between legislators on the size of it. But another thing that can happen there right, is when people start to sense like, oh, shit, this might not pass, right? Hmm. The machetes come out real quick for things uh, to cut okay. because it's like they're trying to get it under some number, right? It's like, well, if, if we can like get the spending low enough, then we can pass this bill. Hmm. And if we can't, we get no bill. And so they're, so they're trying to start getting cut somewhat at random. Exactly, right? And, and like maybe they didn't cut it enough so the bill won't pass is the worry. And so there has to be like real pressure to not cut a particular part of it for that part to remain. And, and I think that's probably the biggest piece of this is like, you know, how, how do you keep something in a bill when there's so much pressure to get rid of it? And when it's not clear which person is championing it, right? Like who is going to say, no, you cannot fucking cut this part of the bill. Hmm. I mean, maybe everyone, that would be one possible answer, but it didn't turn out to be the answer. Right. And it's not like, well, this is the person that had COVID in their state. So they're going to keep fighting to try and like prevent the future. Like everyone kind of did. So, so it sort of traces back to this original question of like, why does no one care that much in the first place yeah. about like, you know, future pandemics? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think to be honest, I wouldn't have predicted this one. I would have thought that people would be more interested in funding, funding the science that would stop the next COVID-19. But I don't, I don't know. The world constantly surprises one. Um, <laughs> what, what is the current state of kind of the FTX foundation that you're trying to set up? And I suppose the other philanthropic infrastructure that you want to build in order to get the most out of your money? Yeah. So I think like over the past, you know, year and a half or so, we'd been giving without a formal foundation, just sort of like ad hoc, you know, about six months ago, we started actually setting up an actual foundation and hiring actual people for it and, uh, and sort of like formalizing that it exists. And so that that has happened now, like it is now a thing that exists. And you know, this guy, Nick Beckstead, who I, I know you know, and probably many of the listeners do. Yeah, I think he was, he was a guest back in the very early days. Episode 12, I think, from memory. It's been, it's been oh, a little wow. while, but yeah, you can, you can hear some of his thoughts on how to do good through philanthropy in that episode. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> you have a good memory. But yeah, he, he's, he's heading it up and, and have a few other people who have joined or, or are joining. And, you know, ramping up, I think we're aiming to give upwards of 
you know, I think upwards of a hundred million this year. We'll see how much it ends up exactly being like, that'll depend on a lot of details, but I am overall really excited for it. And, you know, I, I think like it's again, it's like, it's the thing that matters the most in the end. And it's really nice to actually see it starting to, you know, come to fruition. Yeah. Turns out that the Nick Beckstead episode was number 10. So I sp- <laughs> my memory is... Oh, could, never mind, bad memory. It could be worse. It could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess, where do you kind of hope that the foundation will get to in terms of staffing and capabilities in the in the fullness of time? Yeah, it's an interesting question. In terms of staffing, like, I mean, we try and run relatively lean. I think like often people will try and hire their way out of a problem and it doesn't work as well as they're hoping. And I'm definitely nervous about that. Like, you know, FTX is... I mean, it's a lot bigger than it once was, but it's a lot smaller than many of our competitors are. Hmm. In terms of staffing, we have about 250 people globally, I think now, which feels like an enormous number to me, but it's also like, you know, 5% of what many of the other exchanges have. Hmm. But uh, so, so, so in terms of raw staffing, I'm not totally sure because, you know, I think you can do a lot without that with many right people. people. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of scope, I think, I think, you know, ultimately giving away hundreds of millions a year, possibly more. But but beyond that, and, and this is something that I think we're really excited to be exploring, actually taking the initiative on some projects, whether that's incubating them, helping to found them, giving operational support and advice to them, or actually just spinning off some philanthropic projects ourselves. Mm. I think that like funding is is helpful, but it's not the only missing ingredient. And I think often actually there's there's I don't know, there's this weird thing where like sometimes there'll be a project that everyone knows should happen. And that like everyone thinks would make sense and including like funders and founders and like, you know, everyone else in the community. And yet it doesn't happen. Yeah, it doesn't happen. Right. And the question is like, well, okay, like why did it not happen? Like what went wrong? And I think the answer is, I don't know exactly, but I think often you get this sort of like weird thing where it's like, well, you know, there was funding, but the funding is like, well, okay, but where's the founder? And the founder's like, well, is there funding? And like, yeah, it's sort of a mess. Or it requires slightly a, a happy coincidence if all of the ingredients that you need to actually start the project kind of all, all come exactly. together at, at the right moment when they're when say the person is free to actually start a project rather than busy with something else. Exactly, and and so I, th- I think that like that's that's my sense of why sometimes things don't actually come together in practice, hmm. and and that part of what we want to do is see if we can help fight against that a little bit, you know, by just actually trying to you know make something happen ourselves and say, look, we have the funding. It is definitely here because we are the funding. We have a person to start it. There's full knowledge between those two that the other one is here. Like we're declaring that this is going to start. Yeah. I guess what are some of the some of the kind of projects that you're going to, I guess, be advertising that you want founders to apply to you to get to get the money to, to get them going? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot. And I mean, really excited about them. I, I think like some of the things most excited about, you know, on the pandemic side, I think there's a lot of infrastructure that could be built. I think like early detection is one piece of this. Like we didn't know that COVID was happening until, you know, what, like some number of months after it actually started happening. Mm-hmm. And that's not great. So, you know, building systems to be able to detect pandemics early, um, potentially building out frameworks for getting drugs to market quicker. I, I mean, you saw like with COVID, how long was it from, you know, from when we effectively had a vaccine that worked to, you know, when the first person got that vaccine, it's like eight months or something like that. Yeah. It's kind of a while. <laughs> and what Are there any specific ideas you have for, I don't know, technologies or changes that would speed that up? So, yeah, it's a good question. And I think that the technology is one piece of this, although for like 
you know, basically having ready-made virus, you know, antidotes is like one, one answer to this, as opposed to having to like react to it, mm. having them already produced and manufactured, just having a giant store of them. But it's also worth noting that in this case, we actually got kind of lucky. It turns out Pfizer and Moderna just had like a machine that like basically immediately produced the vaccine. Mm. Like they like got the sample and like two days later, like, great, we got the vaccine. <laughs> and even from then it was eight months. Yeah. Right. And so part of this is around the like, being prepared with like, you know, having the an actual antidote. But part of this is also like what happened in those eight months. I think basic answer is regulatory. Like, I mean, it's operation warp speed is what it was called. Hmm. But like, what does that actually mean? Like warp speed meant eight months to get the vaccines to market. And, and that was like not good for COVID, but it would have been way worse if COVID were way worse, right? Like yeah. if, if, if it had a 10% had, fatality rate, then... Exactly. Yeah. You just take the, the, you know, COVID, but you tack on the fatality of, of SARS and like th- that's pretty terrifying. And so I, we like don't actually really have a process for like getting things out there quickly in basically any circumstances. And, and I think that's like, that's got to be part of the answer here. Yeah, yeah. I saw a draft of the of the website you're putting together for the foundation, and you had a bunch of other kind of interesting ideas that I haven't heard promoted so much yet. Uh, projects where you're potentially looking for founders and you're interested in funding them. I guess yeah, yeah, yeah. One was trying to do talent scouting in the developing world, so finding people who have you know amazing potential to become you know the next generation of top researchers in some area, and then pulling them out and giving them the best opportunities that they that they can get. You're interested in starting, I guess, a new newspaper that would have better kind of integrity standards yep. or better standards for accuracy than than any existing newspaper which would be, would be extremely cool. Yeah, another one that I've thought about before and that it's, I'm surprised it doesn't exist already because it doesn't seem like it would be expensive. And that's basically just having a, you know really thorough polling of experts within lots of different domains on what their opinions are about you know, action-relevant issues, <laughs> things that affect people or affect policy or so on. That, you know, there are some things like this. There's this Chicago Booth School survey of economists where they, you know, I think every month or something, they ask them one question about, about some, some topical issue. Yep. It's a bit surprising we don't have a more systematic way of doing that. Yeah, do, do you want to talk about that one? Yeah, totally. And, and this obviously like starts to, to interface a little bit with prediction markets too, where, you know, we don't have like good infrastructure for like, you know, getting consensus answers to hard but important questions, right? And like, obviously there are a, a, a lot of those. But I mean, like, I don't know if I asked you right now, like, what is the consensus on like, I mean, let's take early in COVID, right? What was the consensus on the IFR of COVID? Like, there wasn't an answer to that, right? Yeah. There was just lots of incoherent, disconnected answers that differed by orders of magnitude Mm. and clearly were not like vetted across each other. And that like can't be the best answer. Yeah. There has to be a better way. Yeah, I know. Right. And, you know, if only we had some like consensus mechanisms, right? For, I mean, whatever, you can just have a marketplace for this, right? Like that's sort of like what markets do. They take a lot of people's different opinions on something and like, you know, give a, a central order book to, to, to match those, you know, those opinions against each other and see what consensus comes out. But even if you didn't want to do that, you just take a survey and average the results, right, of, of experts. And even that we don't really have infrastructure for. Mm. You can try to ad hoc do it. And some people tried to do that in various cases, but it's a mess. Like you're like, you know, trying to like cold call people who you think might know something about it and like ask their opinions. And yeah, it's like, it's bizarre that we don't have better answers for this. 
Yeah, yeah. I don't want to act like there's nothing like this. There is, you know, academics write review papers, say, that kind of try to summarize what do people think within a particular field. But that stuff is very slow, <laughs> very yeah. gradual. And I guess it's not always that represented. It's, it's not a thorough survey of the full range of opinion that you might get within within some domain. Yep. Uh, so it's just not suitable for, for every use. Yeah, I agree. And I think just having like standard, you know, standing panels of experts who like you could call together and like just quickly ask a battery of relevant questions and see what they said would be like potentially really valuable for things. Yeah. And and that's probably like even just step one. You know, I, I do think prediction markets are like maybe the right way to go eventually. Like, it like it's sort of like is the right incentive mechanism and and sort of like a pretty good way to 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 aggregate opinions. But there's a lot of things that need to happen for you know that to be a viable answer. And I don't think we're like that close to that. Yeah. Are there any other projects that might be a little bit unexpected or a little bit eclectic that you'd like to highlight for people? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a bunch, some of which you've also talked about. You know, I, I think that the, uh, you know, you brought up, among other things, the trying to recruit, you know, really promising people in, you know, especially like developing world countries that would not otherwise have, you know, real access to, you know, to opportunities and, you know, give them those opportunities to do good in the world is, is, you know, like one thing that, that I'd be super excited about. I think that it's not clear exactly what form that takes, but I think that like, it could just be really, really influential. Um, Mm. that's one that I think is super cool. And you know, what else? I mean, I mean, I I guess I I think maybe there's all sort of like request for project and founder type things Mm. where it's like, look, if you have a good idea, something you want to happen, like just really low bar, Mm. come to us to bring it to you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and we'll try and make it a really smooth process, like get rid of the sort of like trivial inconveniences that make something sometimes not come to fruition. See if that can help spur, you know, more things to action. That's sort of like a type of thing that I'm pretty excited about. You know, what else? I I think in politics, there's a lot And, and in policy, like, it's an enormously influential area, and it's one that I think there isn't enough, enough, you know, effective altruists getting into right now. Trying to think about how can they have, you know, positive impact on on policy in the states, and, and I, I think that helping people get accustomed to it, figure out how to get involved, is something that you know we've been doing a bunch of someone behind the scenes excited to do more of. That's a big area, and 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 I think the last thing is just like really trying to keep an open mind about what big projects might be great and like, you know, being willing to write a billion dollar check if that turns out to be the right thing to do. Like, I I think if someone's like, look, for like this area, like here's what's blocking us, you know, like it's like, we're not going to make progress until we have mapped the entire, you know, we, we have a great, you know, genotype to phenotype map and like, you know, here's like, it would cost like a billion dollars to put that together. Like, I, I want to be in a position where we can say like, all right, you know, we'll, we'll think about it. And, and like, if that compels us and, and you seem like the right person to it, like, yeah, that that's a number that could be gotten. Yeah, I guess. So looking overall at the strategy that you're taking and kind of the, the areas that you're interested in, they seem somewhat similar to Open Philanthropy and I guess Longview Foundation and other people who are trying to give away lots of money in a kind of effective altruist flavored way. I guess that's that's not so surprising given that you uh you poached Nick Beck said to lead on your efforts and, and he'd spent many years working at, at Open Philanthropy. Yeah, what might be distinctive about your approach that will allow you to find things that that you know the other groups haven't already found or are going to find? Yeah. Well before I answer it, let me give a non-answer first. 
which is that in the end, I'm happy for them to find things too. Like it doesn't matter who finds the things, you know? And, and I do think that's worth just like making explicit that our goal isn't to like figure out how to maximize the amount of the impact that gets attributed to us or something like that. Like it doesn't matter who it gets attributed to, but you know, have, having sort of gotten that out of the way, like, you know, I, I think that being really willing to give significant amounts is a real piece of this, like being willing to, to give, you know, a hundred million and, and not needing anything like certainty for that. Right. We're not in a position where we're like, well, you know, if you want like this level of funding, like you better have like, you know, effectively proof that what you're going to do is great. Like we're happy to give a lot with not that much evidence and not that much conviction. If we think it's in expectation, great. And like, maybe it's worth doing more research, but maybe it's just worth going for. And, and I, I think that that is something where like, it's, and it's, it's a different style. It's a different brand. And like, you know, we, I think in general are pretty comfortable, you know, going out on a limb for what seems like the right thing to do. Yeah, I guess you might bring a different cultural aspect here because you come from, you know, market trading where you have to take a whole lot of risk and you just got to be comfortable with that or there's there's not going to be any, there's not going to be much out there for you. And also the kind of like very risk taking attitude of going into entrepreneurship, like double or nothing all the time in terms of growing, growing the business. I guess, you know, I've, I've had a worry that's been developing over the last year that the effective altruism community might be a bit too conservative about its giving at this point because, you know, many of us, including me, got our start when our style of giving was pretty cash-starved, it was pretty niche. And so we developed a sort of frugal mindset, <laughs> a kind of be careful mindset. And on top of that, I guess, to be honest, as, as a purely aesthetic matter, I kind of like being careful and discerning rather than, you know, moving fast and doing lots of stuff that I expect in the future is going to look look foolish or, or making a lot of bets that, that, that could make me look like an idiot down the road. My, my colleague Benjamin Todd estimated last year that there's $46 billion committed to effective altruist style philanthropy. And of course, that, that, that figure's flying around all the time, but it's probably something similar now. And according to his estimates, that figure had been growing at 35% a year over the last six years. So you're like increasing it, you know, it's been growing much faster than we've been able to disperse these, these funds to, to really valuable stuff. So I guess me and, and other people might want to start thinking like, Maybe the big risk is that that we should all be worried about is not about being too careless, but rather not giving enough to what look like questionable projects to us now, because, you know, the marginal project in 10 years time is going to be noticeably more mediocre or like noticeably less promising. Or alternatively, we might all be dead from X risk already because because <laughs> yeah. we missed the boat. Completely agree. I mean, I think that is that is roughly my instinct that like I, I think that there are a lot of things that you have to go out on a limb for. And I think it's just the right thing to do. And that probably is a movement we've been too conservative on that front. And, and I think a lot of that is because, you know, as you said, like coming from a place where there's a lot less funding and where it made sense to be more conservative. Uh, and I also just think, you know, as you said, like people don't like taking risks. Most people don't, right? And I think especially it's like a really bad look often to like, you know, say you're trying to do something great for the world and then you have no impact at all. And I think that feels like really demoralizing to a lot of people, even if it was the right thing to do in expectation. I think it still feels like really demoralizing. And so I think that's something that I basically fighting against is the right thing to do. That, that instinct in, in trying to push us as a community, you know, to, to try ambitious things nonetheless. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it, it makes sense that in as much as there's a very strong trend in how, how abundant funding is and, you know, how, how open you should be to funding high risk things, the culture is always going to lag that because it's just so hard to fully catch up. Yeah. You're always kind of used to, you always, you have a culture and a mindset that was appropriate three years ago. And yet, you know, today things are very different. 
I think that's right. And I think that there's also like a little bit of a tendency sometimes for like there to be like kind of bullshit, you know, expected value calculations that imply something might be really important. A lot of skepticism. And then if you just like fast forward like six years, those calculations are now canonical. And like everyone has bought that like that's what the expected value is, but we have high uncertainty. And like sometimes I think you can skip that six year period and be like, all right, I, I see where this is going. You know, obviously super interesting arguments against it, but like, you know, I think AI went through something like that in some communities where like there's sort of early people being like, even if there's only a 1% chance that AI is going to destroy the world this century, it's really important. Other people are like, oh, that sounds like bullshit. Like, come on. Like that didn't work. And like six years later, I think that is like basically the canonical line in EA with like, you know, some more uh, sophisticated thinking. But I think like that the core logic that was laid out a long time ago is effectively still the logic that's, you know, used to justify it at a high level. I think there's some things that are like that now. And I guess you think that's, it's reasonable or that you think people should have been open to funding stuff that is very high risk in that sense. Yeah. Uh, and perhaps have been like a bit more skeptical than was justified given the general abundance of funding that we should expect. I, I think that's basically right. And, and I think that there's probably some analogs of that today. I, I think the political realm is probably one of those where like my instinct is like, yes, we don't really know what we're talking about there in some ways, but like come on, we can make guesses, you, you know? And like, if if you're forced to write down quantitatively, like what do you think the impact of like X will be in the political realm? What do you think the cost, whatever. I think if you're forced down to write down those numbers, it just looks very compelling unless you have like very extreme, weird guesses. Yeah, yeah. I guess a possible example of you maybe trying to be more aggressive in terms of funding stuff that urgently needs money is the nuclear security space. Where I think, is it the MacArthur Foundation that recently, yep. for various reasons, has substantially reduced its funding towards organizations that are one way or another trying to reduce the risk of the use of nuclear weapons and I guess, you know, the worst case scenario of a, of a massive nuclear war. And I think you've kind of jumped into, the, into that space and been partially substituting for the funding that, that unfortunately they're, they're no longer providing. Yeah, we're really actively looking into what we can do there. And I think it's like, yeah, it's one of these things where like, I'm not an expert in it. Our opinions could change over time, but like, you know, we, we can have priors and like, I don't know, it seems like an important space. You can try and calculate like, what do you think the odds are? Whatever. I, I think it leads you to think that it's like at least a plausible, pretty plausible candidate and that it's something we should be acting pretty fairly quickly on. Like, like, I think just like every year matters to some extent. Like you can't, you can't after the world blows up, go back and <laughs> put it back together more. again. But, yeah. I guess there's actually two kinds of urgency there. One is, I suppose it's been... <laughs> more salient the last couple of months with uh, with Russia and Ukraine and so on, that, yep. that, that there is an ongoing annual risk that things will spiral out of control and nuclear weapons are, are going to end up being used. Uh, and you really don't want to have been holding your money in reserve, uh, expecting to use it to prevent a nuclear war at some future time, and then, then one happens yep. already. Another thing is, in this specific case, because there's a funder who's kind of pulling out their funding, like withdrawing it, unfortunately, quite quickly, you know, the organizations that were relying on that and the people whose careers were premised on that funding being available, that can all kind of decay. It can begin to, to, to rot away and it won't yep. be available necessarily to fund in three years time. I think it's absolutely right. And, 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 and so I think that there is some sense of supporting the organizations when they need it as bridge funding, if nothing else. Yeah. I guess what in your mind is the best counter argument to all of what we've been saying here, the, the, the best argument that actually we should, you know, keep our powder dry, be, be happy to have substantial amounts of funding in reserve and not be giving it away right away? Yeah. I mean, I think there are some moderately compelling arguments in the opposite direction. Like I don't, I don't want to seem like I'm implying that you just obviously should be dumping it all right now. Mm. Like, I, you know, and, and so, so what are some of those? Well, I think that like, you know, one thing is, well, I don't know. Do we think we have better things to give to now or, or like what we were thinking 
six years ago, right? And and if you think they've gotten better over time, then like that that I don't know, like is that just going to continue? You know, or, or like in six years they're going to be like, what the fuck? Like, obviously we should all be giving for to pineapples. Like, why were we bothering with X risk? Like, just not enough pineapples. Yeah, you know. And I guess the the logic there might be that just we're becoming more informed about these general issues uh, over time. Yeah. That more more personalities have gone into thinking about how to have the biggest impact with funding, and so maybe maybe even though there's more money, the opportunities will be better in five or ten years. Yeah, I think I think that's basically right. That that is like part of the thought there, and 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 that you know, and I think that like we should be taking that seriously and, and making sure that we have enough dry powder. And, and and I think what what this sort of gets me to in the end is I think it starts to become like a a really hard question if and when you get to the point where you're sort of like you know spending like if your plan is to blow eighty percent of the money in the next five years, right? That's like potentially a big problem. It's not like provably wrong, but like there's a real worry there, you know? And so there's a, there's a big risk that something could come along in the sixth year and you won't be able to fund it. Exactly. Whereas if it's a sort of thing where it's like, well, you know, your worry is that you're going to be spending like 10% of the money in the next five years, that seems like a lot less of a concern to me. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose um, Philip Trammell is, uh, is a thinker who's been on the, on the show before talking about this issue of giving now versus giving later it's a very complicated intellectual exercise to try to figure out what the answer is here. When we can, we can link to to the episode that we did with him uh, 18, 18 months ago or so. I guess it seems like the thing that tends to spit out of the models is that you should be giving away some fixed percentage of your total assets each year. And that figure might be as low as, you know, 3%. But even actually 3% would imply substantial increases in, in total disbursement. Yeah. And, th- and that's kind of interesting that even if you're being quite conservative, like allowing the total asset stockpile to grow a lot year on year, then we're not even we're not even getting close to that. I think that's right. And I think that like, yeah, I mean, if you think total assets are 50 billion in the space or something, right? Like, you know, what's 3% of that? That's one and a half billion a year. I don't think the space is giving away one and a half billion a year right now. And so I, I think that we're probably undershooting what the right thing to do is by a fair bit right now. And I think like, yeah, a couple billion a year is probably about the right amount for the space to be giving absent extremely good opportunities. And if you see an extremely good opportunity, maybe a lot more than that that year. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I, I'm like actively thinking like, ah, you know, what could happen in the next two years that I might want to drop a billion dollars on? I don't know. I have like six things on that list. I kind of think probably one's going to happen. Mm. I don't know. Like, I, I think I'd actually be like slightly surprised if none of them turned out to be what we thought the right thing to do was. And so, I, you know, it is dependent on a lot of outside factors. But like, I think people have been like way not trying hard enough to find really impactful things to drop a billion dollars on. And I, I kind of think there are a lot of them. Yeah. What are your biggest uncertainties about what you want to do with the with the money? Yeah, so... I think like, what are some things that I'd want to resolve? I, I think like one relevant factor is like relative risk from bio versus AI hmm. versus nuclear um, is like a relevant factor and how potentially, you know, preventable those are. I think that's probably like a factor of three uncertainty or five uncertainty or something like that. Hmm. And like what the right thing to spend on is. I don't think it, it drills down to like one key assumption. Probably I think it's sort of like a, a messy collection of them. Maybe a a bigger kind of core thing is like, as long as we don't screw things up, we're going to have a great outcome in the end versus how much you have to actively try Hmm. as a world to end up in in a great place. Like the difference between like a really good future and like the expected future, given that we make it to the future, Hmm. like are those 
effectively the same or there's like a factor of like 10 to the 30 away <laughs> from each other right and, and like i think that that that's like a big big factor because if they're basically the same right then like it's all just about pure x risk prevention like nothing else matters but like mm. making sure that we get there if they're a factor of 10 to the 30 apart i mean x risk prevention is good but like it kind of seems like maybe maybe even more important is like trying to see what we can do to have a great future. Right. And, and, and that, that might be similar things, but it might be quite different things that they, mm. you would prioritize. So, so that's like one, I think, crucial consideration that like I don't feel confident about the answer to. Mm. I think different people have very different instincts about, but that will, I think, have pretty, pretty important flow-through effects to all of this. Yeah, I guess an example of something that might you know spill out of that kind of thinking is that it's important to convince people that if humanity survives, we should do something really ambitious and great with our potential rather than yep. just being complacent and you know sitting on earth and living our normal lives. Yep. Maybe we need to have a kind of an active advocacy movement around that. Yep, that absolutely be yeah. an example of it. Another, I think, like key consideration here, which which I, I know like different people have different instincts on. I think I have a different instinct than much of the community does, is how much various things have long-term flow-through effects. Mm. And like maybe to give some example of that, like, you know, how much does the president of the United States today impact the far future conditional on like no existential risk during that president's term, Mm. right? Like ignoring like effect on short-term nuclear war and things like that. Like how much does general political environment have inexpected value, substantial flow through effects to the far future, which I think one thing that that gets to in the end is this question of how path dependent are things, Hmm. right? And I think this actually makes it a little related to the previous question. But how much is it the case that other than a few very specific things like X risk, it's just like there's kind of like perturbations and what happens in the world are just like not going to persist versus how much is it that actually like there's a lot of different places we could end up who really knows what's going to happen. And like, it really matters. And like, you know, we should be like really thinking hard about having like a better versus worse environment today, like, you know, discourse environment, intellectual environment for like diffuse long-term flow through effects. That, that, that I think is like one of the other crucial considerations that I'm like not confident in, but I think matters quite a bit. Yeah, I guess on that topic, you know, we should come back to some of your non, non-long-termist interests uh, later on. But in terms of thinking about the, the long-term future, making that go well, there's some there's some folks who take a fairly kind of narrow view of what's important for shaping the future. You know, there's the kind of the classic short list of, you know, risks from artificial intelligence, risks from biological weapons, risks from nuclear war, you know, maybe one or two other things, but it's pretty narrow. And then by contrast, there's other folks who think it's, you know, really uncertain what's going to turn out to be most important. And it could be something that we haven't thought of at all. And so they want to focus more broadly on improving society's rationality and ability to handle kind of any threats that, that might come up, just improving our institutions and, and improving, improving how we think about things so that humanity can do a better job. Do you fall anywhere on that narrow versus broad spectrum or are you kind of agnostic? I do, not confidently. Like I, I don't want to express confidence about my answer here. I do fall somewhere on the spectrum and especially I think with respect to the EA community, I am more on the broad end. Hmm. Is there a kind of key reason for that? So part of my answer is like, uh, I kind of feel like there needs to be a key reason for the narrow explanation, but hmm. like, that'd be like a little weird if nothing mattered or something like that. But, but like, you know, like what is this, what is this mysterious force that causes long-term convergence in, in what the world is like, hmm. is like, I think part of my response, but I, I think outside of that, you know, thinking about like, well, what matters in the end? Like, let's just start tracing back, mm. right? You know, if in the end, you know, there's some 
crucial moment with AI, right? Let, mm-hmm. Let's just say for now, right? Then like what's going to matter, I guess, is, I don't know, the people who are making that decision at that time or something like that, like what do they think? And, you know, how do they act? And then you're like, all right, well, what what impacts that in turn? And, and I think it's like, all right, well, I guess, you know, that in turn is probably impacted by like, I don't know what most people who are in like crucial AI related field positions are like and what they think and what they value and like what impacts Mm. that. And it's like, well, I don't know. I kind of think like the general discourse environment has like unexpected value, like impact on everyone. Mm. And, you know, if you said like, here's two very different general discourse environments, like you think for like every, like a Trump like world or like a Biden like world or something like that. Right. And they say like, I just found a random AI researcher talk to me about what they care about and what they're thinking about in life. Like, I kind of think you would not say exactly the same thing in those two cases. I think you'd like have in expectation, like some differences. So it's, that's like sort of the diffuse part. But in order for the argument to hold, I also need to argue that there's like some at least, least medium term coherence and like continuity of this, that it doesn't just like all self-correct. And I like think that's probably true. I, I think there's pretty decent arguments for like, you know, I, I mean, like, what what is it that has big impact on like discourse today, for instance? Mm. And, and I think that, you know, well, like I, I think World War II probably does, mm. among other things. I don't know. It seems to me that that reshaped the general political environment by a fair bit in a way, which is like probably quite persistent, quite persistent. At least it has been persistent, mm. right? Like at least I think the world is still quite different because of it. Mm. And like, do, do we sort of like anticipate that's going to wash out sometime soon? I'm not like super... Sure about that. I mean, what if Hitler had won World War II? Like, I don't know. Do you like think we have the same political norms today? Mm. Like, do you think AI researchers would be thinking about the same types of questions? Like, I think no would be yeah. my guess, right? So, so kind of the, the high level point is that uh, it seems to you like there isn't a super strong pull, to, like a tractor towards just, you know, a natural history way that history is going to flow no matter what. That is, it seems more contingent than that. You know, it matters in the long run, yeah. the stuff that that happens now. I think it's basically right. Or at the very least, I'm not super convinced that there is one. Like, I I don't want to seem like I'm confident in what the answer is here. But that's like my instinct. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that, that helps explain why, you know, on the list of projects that you're interested in funding, there's things like you know, starting a new university with a different intellectual focus and forecasting long-term trends in well-being and income and education and health and, and so on. And, and, you know, a newspaper whose number one priority is just covering the most important things accurately. Yep. You're kind of taking this, this broader view on, on how to improve the intellectual environment and how to improve the world. Yeah, I think it's basically right. I guess another thing that a disagreement that sometimes comes up is, you know, how bad is it, for example, if there's a medium-sized disaster? And I guess for our purposes, a medium-sized disaster might include, you know, a great, uh, you know, a war between the US and China, something where it's like, like, it'd be the worst thing that ever happened, but humanity wouldn't necessarily be destroyed in that event. So there would be potential to recover. I noticed that there's there's quite a lot of things on on your list that seem, you know, addressed at that kind of medium-sized catastrophe, where it's like, you know, preventing preventing war and making humanity more likely to recover quickly and effectively from from a disaster like that. Yeah, and I think it's sort of a similar thing of like, you know, I think using World War II as like a proxy for what that could Mm. mean. But, you know, I definitely agree with your framing of it that I think one thing that, you know, we are thinking about a fair bit is, you know, what would be the impact of something like a great power war? And, you know, if the answer is very bad, then like, what could we do today to try to like make that less likely? And I do think my answer is probably very bad. Mm. Like, I I, I think it's like, you know, just in the same way as sort of some of these other factors make everything a lot worse in the world. 
Yeah, and I guess there's multiple different channels that one might worry about. I suppose one will be that it could escalate, like, you know, a great power war could escalate towards full extinction. Another one might be that, you know, eventually humanity wouldn't recover, even given hundreds of years, potentially. And another one might be that we would recover, but like, you know, human culture would be permanently worse because of this horrible, like, scarring, uh, catastrophic experience. Yeah, I I think it's like, I think that last part is at least a decent piece of like how I think Mm. about it, that like, Going through a Mad Max era <laughs> might not be good for, might not be optimal for human cultural right. advancement. Exactly. And like part of this is like, well, you might have a key X risk moment in that, in that period. And I do think that's part of it, but I don't think that's the whole story. You know, I think part of this also is like, okay, even if there's no actual X risk event during that, you know, that sort of Mad Max period of the world, mm. like we might just like emerge with a shittier society that was less trying to build ambitious, great things and more like tearing itself apart and like, mm factional and like look kind of like the middle ages and like you know and i don't want to express too much confidence about what it would look like because i don't fucking know mm. but but i think that's almost sort of my point it's like i i kind of don't feel compelled that we know what these things look like long term yeah so i think that's like you know my best guess is those things do matter so if we're mostly talking about the long-termist giving do you want to talk for a minute about i guess the the giving focused on more near-term concerns like, like global poverty and animal welfare yeah so you know, we do do some amount of giving, which is more short-term focused. And, you know, I think some of this is is in connection with, with our partners. I think some of this is like trying to set a good standard for the fields and trying to show that there are real ways to have positive impact on the world. I think that like, if there's sort of like none of that going on, it's easy to start feeling it's you know easy to forget that you can have real impact. Like you can definitely have strong positive impact on the world. Yeah. And and so I think that's sort of a piece of it. But I also think frankly, you know, to be sort of straightforward about it, that in the end, I think that the long-termist oriented pieces are the most important pieces and and are the pieces that we are focusing on the most. But I, I think that just setting a standard of like we do do good for the world is no matter what is really valuable for communicating what it is we're doing. I also think that there's a big difference between thinking about, you know, devoting 10% of your giving versus 60% of your giving to that. And I I think that that might be a place that I feel like somewhat differently than I think you'll see, at at least in some places where I I really do feel sometimes that like people are, are sort of sacrificing too much expected value for that. And that the arguments are a lot more compelling to do some slice of that than to do like a massive amount of it. Yeah. But that sometimes people seem to be doing like, you know, two thirds of their giving is sort of dedicated to what seems to not, according to them, be the most important thing. Yeah. I mean, is it possible there's another aspect to this? Because, you know, you've been a vegan for a long time, for example, and I've been vegetarian since I was since I was 13. And I think that you leaf, you did leafleting at a university campus, uh, trying to convince people yep. to become vegetarian or, or vegan at some point. That I think both of us find perhaps the suffering of animals in factory farms to be among the most arresting, like disturbing yeah. things in the world, like as as it is right now. And I imagine that that is kind of like it has to be motivating on some level. It's absolutely right. And, and, and I don't know, like all the ways of saying this are a little bit cheesy, but you know, some amount of like I, I don't know, keeping myself honest, reminding myself of what really matters in the end. And like... And I guess that that, that shit is real. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's real. I mean, it's real and it's massive. And it, I mean, the, the numbers are fucking staggering, right? Like, it's like, there's what, like about as many animals are like tortured and killed on factory farms each year as there are humans in the world. There's not like a, a like, you know, there is some suffering somewhere type thing. It's like a, the world is fucking filled with it right now. And like, 
it's of our own creation. And, you know, we should be able to do better than that. We should be better than that. And, and I, and I think like, you know, there does really feel to me like there's some amount of, if we can't stand up for like anything that's happening today, I don't know, how do we trust that like, we actually mean it when we say that is all to do good in the world or something like that, if that, if that makes sense. And, yeah. you know, I don't want to like over try and oversell this argument, but it gets a bit of weight. Yeah. And I think that like, it's something that's like important to me and important to me feeling like I'm, I'm actually trying to do good here. Like that's not just a thing I say when it's costless, like I sort of like having some sacrifice that I make on a daily basis for it to like, remind myself that that is the right thing to do and that, you know, I shouldn't get caught up in vagueness as an excuse to wander in terms of what my ultimate goal and impact are. Yeah, yeah. Are there any projects on global poverty or on animal well-being or any of the, you know, other non-long-termist causes where you're like, you know, particularly excited to find an entrepreneur to to take them forward? It's a good question. So I, I think that like on animal welfare, it's like like another sort of interesting property of it is that it is somewhat tractable hmm. and there are real ways to have impact that are somewhat straightforward. And, you know, I basically think that everything from lobbying corporations to use, you know, more humane, uh, re- really lobbying corporations that are consumers of factory farmed goods to only do so on the grounds that they're like more humanely raised hmm. is like one sort of classic example of this. That's, that's just been incredibly effective historically and and I think it's something that is pretty tractable and people could just be doing more of. So that that's one thing that I think is like potentially really exciting. I think in the political realm, there's a fair bit you can do convincing, you know, politicians, for instance, to support mm. more humane methods. And, and I think just like saying an example does like have some impact there. And there, there are a lot of organizations that are like doing good work, like the Humane League on this front. Um, I, I think it is like just a pretty tractable problem it sort of has to be given that it's it's a problem of our own making mm. so like you know we can it has fix it just by stopping to do solution. stopping doing what we're doing yeah yeah i think that i think that's basically right um in terms of climate change stuff which is maybe somewhere in between mm. i think carbon removal or other sort of geoengineering approaches are like potentially really high impact like all the sort of like straightforward you know decreasing carbon production type things are like somewhat saturated because it's like enormous amounts of money and and thought going into them from a political level right now. But I think not enough is going into, and not enough work is going into potential scientific approaches to it and, and engineering approaches. Yeah. Yeah, let me just put to you a, a random thought that, I, that I've had recently that I'm not sure I've talked about on the show. It's like, when I think about, broadly speaking, you know, the most important areas from an effective actress point of view and the most important ways of solving things, again and again, I'm like, well, what we need is more biomedical researchers working on pandemic prevention. And then in poverty, it's like, well, the best stuff would be like, you know, more biomedical researchers working out how to figure diseases of poverty. And then, you know, in climate change, well, what we need is, you know, more research engineers figuring out how to deplete that. And it's like, yep. just again and again, what we need is really smart people properly funded to do these science and tech R&D stuff. And that's, I think that could just be kind of an accurate bottom line. But the problem would be that if you started funding all of these things, you're going to run out of people who are like qualified and capable of taking on these kinds of roles. And that's maybe when your kind of talent scouting stuff becomes highly, highly relevant that 
conceivably, you know, in coming decades, if a lot of people really get on board with this agenda, then it's not going to be limited by funding. It's going to be like at a global scale, limited by talent, people people who are qualified to take out all of these research projects. And that's going to need a huge pipeline to bring in thousands, tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of, you know, top research scientists. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's moderately compelling and that like, you know, there's people who can actually do things, you know, who can work on the ground on these most important problems is it's absolutely bottleneck. I think particularly founder like people, like people who can create an organization from nothing is a big bottleneck and can manage it and run it. Mm. I think that's like in those same areas, right? Like I, I think that's like a big piece of this. But I also think, yeah, like someone who really fucking knows the science behind this and in in, in, a, in a practical way is like really valuable and important. And, you know, more people who have in-depth biomedical knowledge working on pandemic preparedness in functional organizations is one example of that. Yeah. I suppose at the moment, our framing of this is, you know, our social networks, effective altruism, long-termism, people who care about these things, those groups need more people who both have a scientific background and an entrepreneurial background. But as you scale up, the conclusion becomes that not that we need that, but like the United States needs that. Europe needs that. <laughs> we just need, yep. we need better ways of training people. And, and those, then you start converging to kind of maybe more common sense ideas about how do you improve society, which includes, you know, improving education and building better universities and so on. Yeah, if you can figure out how to do it. Yeah, it's a challenging one. Yep. What is kind of the biggest challenge that you foresee with your philanthropy over the over the next five years? Anything that we haven't covered yet? I mean, I think in the, this does go back to something we've talked a little bit about is I think the biggest challenge that I, I would guess we run into is getting people to execute well on the things that we want to do, right? Like that we're like, here's a great thing that could happen. We have plenty of funding for it. Let's make it happen. And then we're like, who wants to take this funding and make this thing happen? And we can't find that person. Hmm. That is, I think, like the single biggest problem that I like anticipate us running into. Right. Do you have any preliminary thoughts on how to get around that? I suppose one thing is just spreading the word a lot about FTX Foundation potentially. Yeah. I mean, that that's like part of my hope is that like, I don't know, we'll say like being very loud about the foundation in general and also like, hey, here's a great thing. We'd love someone to do it, right? Like early detection for pathogens. I would love someone to do that. I'm going to fucking build this. Like I'm going to take charge of this and build the most badass detection center. So we will know within like a picosecond if there's a new pathogen <laughs> anywhere in the world. And like if someone has like the right background for that and is really excited, driven, good at leading projects and wants to do that, like we have plenty of funding for that, right? Like, and those people have to exist somewhere. And so I, I think like, yeah, shouting from the rooftops is a piece of this, making it clear that if you're excited about this, you can just do it. Like, mm. you know, we'll, we'll make it as painless as possible. We will provide operational support for it to the extent that we can. And hopefully that helps you know, like we will be happy to help with like entity incorporation and, and, you know, things like that, which, which I think do sometimes get in the way of people trying to make progress on this stuff. Like I, I think those things matter and, and are not super easy and do sometimes just get in the way of, of progress on that. So I think that sort of like is another piece of this. And I don't know. I mean, if you guys, you know, if you have okay. other ideas, like all ears, like I'm, yeah, I'm excited for this. Maybe we need some kind of organization that can get people to think about how to have more impact with their careers. I, and, I know, right? You know, it could write about problems that people, in, I don't know, it, it would never work. <laughs> anyway, a lot of listeners to the show have kind of gone out trying to make money in order to give it away. They, they've had the same vision for their careers that, that you had eight years ago. But I suppose some of them now fear that huge donors like you and Open Philanthropy and, and a couple of others that are coming through the pipeline are going to mean that funding is going to be relatively plentiful, like maybe maybe really plentiful. And so the giving isn't going to be helpful. Yeah. Do you have a view on whether 
kind of your success is evidence that more people who have similar values to you should go and try to make a lot of money because you've succeeded so much. Or on the other hand, a reason for people to instead, rather than trying to make money, like try to start the projects that you want to fund because like funding is now now more available. Yeah. So there's sort of this thing where on the one hand, it's evidence that it's like easier to make a lot of money maybe. And and so thus there's going to be more money and money is less needed. On the other hand, if it's easier to make a lot of money, then maybe you should go make a lot of money because mm. it's, it's easier to do. That's <laughs> it's sort of two, two, two sides of the same coin there. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that I'm sort of compelled by both pieces of that. And in the, in the end, I guess, I don't know which direction it points in more strongly. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think it's been a huge shift on net. Hmm. I think what it does mean, though, is that if you're not super excited about your earning to give career path, that's like a pretty bad sign for it. Right. Like, like I think the thing it points most strongly against is like grudging low upside earning to give because yeah. <laughs> you think it has to be the right thing to do. Like, no, that, that, and so, so I think that that it is a strong factor against that. But I think that, like, on the one hand, I think it means like, yeah, you should be like really excited for like potential massive earning to give opportunities, things you're really excited about. On the other hand, I think it also means there's more funding for projects since you should be really excited to start a project that could use funding. And I, I don't know exactly which is, is stronger. And I think maybe another factor here that does like non-trivially lead to my, my feelings on this is that I think there are a lot of things to do with money. Like, mm-hmm. like and I think I'm like way on one end of that spectrum. I see. Yeah, could you talk about that? Um, I guess for quite a long time, you've been maybe more optimistic than others, including me about like, you know, how much funding or like how much one might be able to spend usefully in a lot of these areas. Yeah, so like, you know, I, I think in bio, how much could you usefully spend? I think it's like, a billion or two on an early detection center, maybe more over time, mm. like on like fast pathways for vaccine development and release. Like, yeah, I think you're talking a few billion. I think, I think it like quickly adds up to like 10 billion or something mm. in like the bio area of like identifiable projects, a bunker, how much that costs, eh, you know, hundreds of millions. Like, you know, okay. Um, I think you look at AI things like harder to think about from a, a cost perspective. Not to say cost doesn't matter there, but I, I, I just think it's like a little weirder to think about because I think it's like a little more bimodal. Mm. Like it's sort of like, I don't know, either it's just how many servers do you buy or it's not just like that. Oh. <laughs> and like, you know, if it is, then like that means there might be a gigantic money pit at the end for AI safety. But like, mm. if not, maybe it just ends up being like not super relevant. Uh, I see. So you're saying that there could be this enormous money pit of tens of billions of dollars or, or, or more if it really matters kind of who can buy lots of compute at some essential time when AI is making big advances. Exactly. But if that's not the case, <laughs> then it, it can be a lot harder to see where you could spend tens of billions. Exactly. Like AI is, is, is more of a thinking thing than a money thing outside of that. Mm. But that might be a real factor. Then I think you look at like, I don't know, politics and policy, right? Like, I think, you know, I'm pretty compelled that like, if you think it matters, and again, if you don't think it matters, then obviously the amount that you spend on that is zero. But if you do think it matters, that like the kind of numbers you're talking about are like, you know, a billion every two years or something like that, Mm. that could be like potentially usefully used. And, you know, that's a fair bit. So, you know, that probably you should think of as like, you know, billion every few years is like the equivalent of, you know, 10 billion today or something. I don't know, making that up. Yeah. But you know, I think sort of like putting these together, I'm sort of like, yeah, you know, I think that a few billion a year is like, maybe, I don't want to say it's like a, a lower bound, but it's like, that certainly isn't like my upper bound on this. Like, I certainly think it could get a lot bigger than a few billion a year that could be really usefully spent. And, 
you know, I don't know if you could spend like 10 billion a year really usefully. It actually wouldn't completely shock me if that turned out to be true, mm. but it maybe would surprise me a little bit. But, but yeah, I kind of think these numbers are big. Yeah, yeah. An audience member wrote in with this question. Sam's wealth is conceivably a third of all kind of EA donor committed wealth. From a worldview diversification perspective or a kind of moral parliament pluralism perspective, that level of concentration has some downsides. Is Sam and his giving explicitly going to try to preserve a vibrant marketplace of ideas and prevent funding capture where folks go out of their way to avoid antagonizing Sam and also, I guess, trying to please your kind of idiosyncratic beliefs and beliefs and preferences to an excessive degree? Yeah, well, so like going out of their way to avoid like angering me, I mean, I'm not going to like negatively fund (laughs) like i'm not gonna like you know like you can't go below zero to some extent right and so like you know i I, to some extent like you you can always find funding from other sources and so you can't get sort of more extreme than that yeah but putting that aside for a second like you know i i mean like i think that we want to fund a pretty broad array of things and and i do think for what it's worth that like probably more so than most or at least than many people in ea I do think that there are a pretty broad set of things that matter and that, you know, I, I'm sort of definitely not like a AI X risk, like direct action on AI X risk is the only thing that matters hmm. type person. So, you know, I, I think that like, I, I'd like, like to think that we are, are excited to do a pretty, you know, broad array of things. I think if you look at like our sort of like early RF, you know, RFPs and stuff, I think they, they reflect that. We're also potentially looking to do a significant regrantor program hmm. where we give, you know, basically fully discretionary, you know, funds to people in the community to regrant. The exact shape of that, I think, is still under discussion. But I think that's one way for us to to diversify to some extent. And, and I think if nothing else, like to get to a position where like we're not going to see all the great opportunities and we don't want an opportunity to be missed just because like not directly in front of us. And and so I, I think this is like part of our attempt to to address that. Yeah, yeah. I guess thinking about this issue of like how do you maintain lots of diversity of of opinion, even when because of because of the way that business tends to work, you know, a small number of people end up making much more money than than most others. So you tend to have a lot of concentration of funding, but at the same time, we want to have lots of ideas floating around it and not not have too much of a concentration of power over opinion. I guess if you're someone who's, you know, funding, you know, 1% of all effective altruist style giving, then it seems like you can kind of just go with your own opinions and fund the stuff that you think is great and not fund the stuff that you don't like. But as you get bigger and bigger, once you're a third of all of the funding as a foundation or, or, or half of it or something like that, then you might even want to, well, you might want to go out of your way to fund some things that you personally don't think are good just because other people think they're good, that that could even be good by your own lights because of the risk that you could make a mistake. And I guess even further, you could end up wanting to spend, you know, 1% of all of your money funding people to write about how you're making terrible mistakes and the stuff that you're funding is a bad use of money or possibly even harmful because that will allow you to potentially see see the errors in, in, in what you're what you're doing yep. from your own point of view. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we might even have. Uh, I think I, I think we're going to have something more public coming about out about this at some point. But I think very explicitly that we are excited to fund people to tell us how we might be wrong. Hmm. I think that that's like something that that we've already written down as being like on the stack of things that we're going to express, like, you know, potential excitement to fund. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky with that because it seems like. Almost by definition, when you're funding people to tell you that you're wrong, it's not useful if you already agree with them or agree with them too easily. So you kind of have to fund stuff that you think is 
bad in some way, or at least like mistaken or misguided in some way. And yet you have to figure out which of the mistaken or somewhat misguided stuff you want to fund in order to get more of it. Yep. I guess you got to, you got to think, well, what is the, what is like challenging me that I still think it's wrong, but it's like challenging me, but it seems very thoughtful. Maybe that's like the, the least bad option here. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I think you have to try and find things which seem like, you know, not what you think, but like, you know, not like provably wrong, mm. more like, oh, that's like different and interesting and like could imagine a world in which that were right. And like, it's not currently my best guess, but like, you know, let's see how I feel after seeing what they have to say about it. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a bit more about artificial intelligence and how that could influence the, the long-term future and what one might do about that for a minute. I guess you've been running <laughs> FTX for the last couple of years, which I imagine has taken up a lot of your time. And so you might not have had tons of spare time to be reading on the internet, yep. forming, forming your own opinions about this. But yeah, do you have any thoughts to share on what might be best to fund in terms of positively shaping the development and ultimately the deployment of substantially more advanced AI than what we have now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's super important. And I also don't feel extremely confident on what the right thing to do is. Um, not always the best combination, but <laughs> I mean, whatever it is, what it is. This, this is a podcast. You can say whatever you like. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that like, so I definitely don't feel confident that there's just like a binary thing here of like safe or not safe. And that, you know, you just, you figure out how to do the safe thing and then you press the safe button, you're safe. I think AI could have a lot of different impact on the world. And there's like a pretty wide range of it from amazing to catastrophic and everything else in between. Hmm. And so, so part of this is that like, and, and maybe that just sounds like, well, obviously that's what you think, but, but I don't think that's like clearly the consensus in EA. I think the consensus is, is in some senses closer to like, you know, to, to sort of like, well, let's make sure it's safe. And I, I think I feel a little bit more like, uh, what's that mean exactly? Like, you know, there's, it's more of a, there's a lot of things in the world. A lot blurrier. Yeah. And so, so that's like, I think like a, a piece of this that is probably important to how I think about it. I think like, you know, outside of, of that, I, I guess I'd say like that, well, not just outside of that, I think it's like a little bit consistent with it that I think that like differential AI progress matters a fair bit. Like I'm, I'm fairly worried about what happens if it's like non-aligned AI labs that, that end up, you know, getting to really powerful AI first mm. and that like there might be a fair bit of lock-in around that. Hmm. You know, that might be a sort of pretty crucial period where like whatever sort of design considerations are, you know, the first person to get there has will like impact the long run vision of, of AI and long run might not mean long run in years. Right. Like, and that's one of the weird things here, right. That like, you know, the long run could mean like the next two days as AI scales up massively because you can just get you, you can pile a lot more compute onto onto one system potentially very quickly um or, yeah. or you could get rapid improvements in the efficiency of it yeah and so i think like yeah the self-improvement factor there i think is like is is a big one and like you know could we end up in a, in a world where like you know pretty rapidly we go from like zero to 60 like absolutely and so it, it could really matter what that what we look like as we're doing that mm. and and, it, and i think we've like you know, I'm certainly not the only one to be saying this, so I, I don't want to like claim that, you know, this is exactly revolutionary, but I, but I do think it's important and, and I don't think it's something that has been like really fully appreciated in some cases. Yeah. So that that's, I think, like one thing that I think I feel moderately strongly about. On that topic, yeah, an audience member wrote in the question, in a crunch time, would Sam be willing to spend a big part of his fortune in a relatively short amount of time, let's like, say under a couple of years on AI safety? So it was sort of like, you know, could you try to blow 10 million in, 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 in three years? I mean, yeah, but I kind of wonder why the question is like a few years and not like a few weeks. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah. sure. But like, yeah, same thing for a few weeks or a few days. And I don't know, like whatever makes sense, makes sense. And like, yeah. you know, in one sense, I, that's a vacuous thing to say, but it, but I think in this context is not vacuous because I think that's like legitimately it's like, anticipatable. Yeah. You know, I do basically think that it's really important to be willing to do that. And that that is like, I'd be really sad if I didn't. Yeah, I guess. So in terms of if there is a crunch time or crunch moment like that, when might it occur? People who are, you know, as informed as one can be about a speculative topic like this, you know, vary quite widely. I guess, you know, at the nearest level, some people say five years or 10 years. Looking further out, you know, some people think, oh, no, it's actually going to be 50 years before we could have an artificial general intelligence that would be transformative in this way. Do you have any kind of inside view on on that timelines question? I'm skeptical of a lot of the, the views that people express on it. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm particularly skeptical of confidence in it. Like, if you want to say that the odds are not zero of like very short timelines, like, yeah, I agree. They're not zero. And, and I think that, that like, is there a chance of like extremely short timelines? Like, yes, there is a chance of that. But like a chance is not the same thing as a high chance, you know? And like, I, I think that there's a lot of people who do seem to sort of have what seems to be a surprisingly binary view of, of that or something. And, and mm. that, you know, I, I think my thought is like, look, we don't fucking know what we're talking about. Like, what are the odds it's in the next year extremely low, but not zero? What are the odds it's in the next five years? Like, yeah, I don't know, moderately low, but not implausible. What are the odds it's in the next 25 years? Yeah, absolutely could be. What are the odds it's in ever? Like, I don't know. I, I'd be like skeptical of someone saying more than like, 80% that there is ever like transformative AI. Like, yeah. you know, and, and so I think it's like a pretty diffuse probability distribution. Yeah, I mean, I have the same view, which is, is kind of agnosticism or just, you know, taking taking the range of opinions that educated people have and just saying, well, we really don't know within that range. Yep. And then, I, and then I'm really not sure what to do with that. <laughs> so I'm like, should we be talking on the show a lot more about the fact that in 10 years time, like there could be a massive revolution in how society functions? I'm just not quite sure what that what that implies for my actions and I guess maybe for, for yours. Right. No, it's a good question. I mean, I think that is a problem. I think people have not necessarily come up with extremely compelling concrete things to do about that fact. I, I don't want to say there are none. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I suppose that, you know, people who are knowledgeable about machine learning and about AI development, any of them who want to work on finding ways of making AI more reliable in, in how it's used so it's less likely to do something super bad and unexpected. I think that they should all have the funding that they want to, to pursue that work as long as it's yep. like broadly sensible. And then beyond that, I'm, I'm kind of a bit unsure. Yeah, I basically agree. And, and I do think that like making sure that, you know, good positive work in that field does have funding is in, important. And it's, you know, something we've been like, you know, super excited to fund things there have already started doing a bit of that. And so, yeah, that's part of it. But yeah, outside of that, it's not totally obvious other than like, I, I think it is like another reason to be skeptical of like not spending anything right now. I think it's like, hmm. you know, if you do think that short timelines have non-trivial probability, then like, you know, it actually doesn't prove you shouldn't be spending a shit ton right now, right? Because you could imagine taking the position that like, yeah, but all our impact is in the world where that's not the case. But I think it's, it is another reason to be like skeptical of spending less than like a few percent a year. Yeah. Even beyond the technical side of things, I feel very nervous about AI in part because there's this whole other issue of deployment and proliferation, I guess, might be a term where you're like, well, now we, ha now we have this technology that's very powerful in terms of what I can think about and what it might be able to autonomously do if you, if you tell it to do that that could be turned towards kind of hostile uses or, or, or aggressive uses yep. or malicious uses. And as the algorithm becomes more and more efficient, as, it's, as it improves, and as we get better at making more and more compute, 
you have this problem that like more and more people are going to have access to this very potentially powerful, influential technology and it seems difficult to stop that. And so you can't, I mean, the analogy people make with proliferation is to nuclear weapons. A difference there was that nuclear weapons were very hard to make in the first place and they didn't get that much easier over time. It's like, it's, it's like plausible to keep the number of actors who can build a nuclear weapon relatively narrow. Yep. But but with computing technology, it's kind of not like that. <laughs> Things that get invented tend to get spread very, very fast. Like, like copy-paste. Exactly. And I'm like, well, I, I just don't know how we deal with that. Yeah. I haven't, heard, I haven't really heard a great, a great proposal. Well, I think that's a... Yeah, it gets to a really nasty point, which is like, what's the end game here? Yeah. You know, all right, so you like, you have some plan for like stability for like an AI system then like 10 years later, someone develops like a rogue AI system and you're fucked anyway. Like what's, what gets us out of the time of perils there? Yeah. I guess I know that people have thought about this a whole lot more than I have. Uh, I guess I haven't seen great reports on it yet, but so you you could have some kind of standoff between different AI systems where they each agree to kind of allow different interest groups to maintain their own like sphere of influence, basically something like what countries have now. Yep. I mean, I think one thing that gets to is like, who has the power offense or defense like mm. can you create a situation where the offense doesn't have the power mm. or at least where there's like mutually assured destruction or something and i guess my thought is like i don't know if there's a chance of it i certainly wouldn't want to say like no fucking way but like i also certainly wouldn't want to say oh yeah that's the answer that's what we're gonna do i feel safe now yeah like it feels to me sort of like yeah maybe you get lucky i kind of wouldn't bet on it kind of wouldn't bet on that being like a, a real possibility Although it could be, I don't know. It's it's not it's not a super satisfying. Like you know, oh yeah, that's the end game. Oh, we're gonna yeah, <laughs> gonna be able to handle this one. <laughs> um, all right, this this is too depressing. So let's 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 push on and talk about uh, talk about politics for a minute. As I mentioned in the intro, you you were one of the biggest, at least public donors to Joe Biden's presidential campaign. And I'll just quickly run through the reasoning because I think listeners to the show are not going to be shocked by it. Which is something like you know during its president's term. About $20 trillion is spent by the US government. And yet the amount of money that is spent on each presidential campaign is about a billion dollars. And there do seem to be substantial differences between the candidates and what they want to do and how they'd like to spend that $20 trillion, as well as their like the military and the regulatory state and all of these other things that the president has has influence over. So got, okay, so you got this ratio of the 20 trillion, say, plus like a whole bunch of other stuff to 1 billion is about a 10,000 fold multiple. It seems like maybe, you know, there's a lot of leverage from adding something to that to that one billion. That's the broad reasoning. And I guess, obviously, you also need to think that Joe Biden would make a better president, which is because you, you evaluated the situation and drew that conclusion. How do you feel about that giving in retrospect? Yeah, I basically agree with that logic. And and, and I think I, I think my I do have some regrets. I think the regrets are, are mostly not having given more. Hmm. But whatever else just did not have nearly as much to give hmm. them. I mean, it feels like just a fucking eternity ago. It was... Yeah. I, I guess it was, it was, what, a year and a half ago. But like, <laughs> I don't know, you know, the world was different then. Like. So an eon in crypto time, yeah. Yeah. I suppose we've talked a little bit about this issue of political giving on the show before. And something that people have often suggested is that things like the presidential campaigns, even though it's only a billion, they're kind of, they're a little bit saturated and they find it hard to figure out ways to spend more money because so much of the influence is concentrated on a relatively small number of states with a relatively small number of swing voters. And so like just how many ads can you run on TV? How many times can you call these people telling them to show up to vote? Maybe even, you know, a billion dollars is actually getting you pretty close towards like them finding it hard to spend more money. But then there's tons of other like political races that might be less important than the presidency, but are much less funded, where it's like very clear that like your, your money really can shift the outcome. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? I do. So it's definitely something I've heard. And I think my first response, which is not a super helpful response, but but it is my first instinctual response is mm-hmm. like, 
I agree. One could argue that. <laughs> Are you arguing that? <laughs> like, like, is that how you think the numbers turn out? It's not how I think the numbers turn out. Hmm. But like, I agree. One could make that argument, and, and I, I feel like often when people do make that argument, I, I mean, it's a little Martin Bailey like sometimes where they're like, they're not actually really exactly trying to like strongly claim that, or even weakly claim, or maybe even claim that that's how they think the numbers turn out. Hmm. But like, I sort of want to drill down to like, are these people saying that they've done the math and they think that it is not an effective use? Or are they just like bringing up that there could be hypothetical worlds in which it was not an effective use, you know? Well, I think the argument isn't so much that, you know, donating to a presidential campaign isn't a good idea, but rather that there might be like, you know, other even more like neglected and, and valuable opportunities in within politics. Yeah, my sense when people make this argument mm. is that usually they are at least implicitly like okay, trying yeah. to make the argument that it is not a good use to donate to. You, you could do both, mm. right? Like, why not both then? You know, it, it's like, and so, sorry, if the argument is that there are good things to do outside of the presidency, I completely agree with that. Okay, yeah. And like, there are absolutely good things to do. But you don't buy that there's no way to spend more than a billion dollars over an entire presidential campaign. Usefully. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And, and I think that putting aside the other things, my sense is that, I, I don't know, like when, when you look into to sort of like things done by like the experts in various fields, you know, campaign operatives would be like one example. Like, do you have a sense of like in general how impressive those things sort of generally end up looking? Personally, not not, not really, to be honest. Yeah. So I, I think like often... You think it could be better? Yeah. I mean, I, I, th- I think like often the sort of like state of the art is like surprisingly shitty. Mm, okay. And like sort of the answer is like, oh boy, you know, that's, I agree it's better than like a monkey would do. <laughs> like like it's, sort of, it's not like literally random, but it's like not super impressive given like... The stakes. Yeah, the stakes. And, and given you're sort of like, oh yeah, this is obviously, you know, a thing that people will have thought a lot about and like worked on a ton. I'm sure the state of the art is really impressive here. And you look into it and you're like, oh, that wasn't really impressive. Mm. That was kind of mediocre, actually. Yeah. So I guess part of what might be going on here is that people, you know, when they're thinking about, you know, shifting the spending from $1 billion to $2 billion on a, on a presidential campaign, people are thinking about just like scaling up exactly the things that they're doing now. And you're saying, no, we should be thinking bigger. There's like a lot of other things that could be going on. There's lots of ways we could improve the research, improve our like understanding of what positions yeah. are good and, and on and on and on. You, people need to expand their expand their minds. I think that's right. I think it's like, all right, yeah, if you do a really shit job, I agree. <laughs> but like, what if you want to do a good job with that billion? Then do you think it would have impact? Oh, well, I in think the that is, yes. case, yeah. Right, yeah, you know? And, and, and maybe like one thing to point to here is there's some cool studies showing that like, I don't know how much faith to put in these, but showing that at least some extent like, in some cases, the average campaign ad has net zero impact, mm. literally none. It's unclear if it's even net positive. Mm. And I think a lot of people's takeaway from that is like campaign ads don't matter. And I think it's like not clear that's the right takeaway. I think like a different takeaway one could have is, well, okay, but like what if you only look at the good campaign ads? Mm. Like is it that every ad is centered around zero? I think the answer is basically no. That's not what it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. that, it's that they're on both sides of zero. I see. You know, but what what if you only did the ones on the right side of zero? The ones that are good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Here's, here's an idea for you. So back in the 2020 primary for the Democrats, I was pretty open to being in favor of whichever candidate was most likely to win the election. <laughs> because in terms of like the policy outcomes that you'd get, I thought it was going to be kind of determined by the Senate and, and, and the House of Representatives. And so it didn't super matter what the specific policy preferences were of the president. And apart from that, also, it's also just very important to win the election. 
Um, but I didn't really have a very strong view about which candidate was most likely to win the election if they if they were nominated. I felt pretty pretty agnostic about that, and I kind of still do ex post. But couldn't we? It didn't seem like there was an active effort to spend a hundred million or a billion dollars on a research project to answer that question. Like people did make arguments back and forth, but it seemed very informal and like not very systematic and not very open minded. It was usually rationalizing people's preferences for the candidate that they liked on the on the policy issues. Yeah. Maybe this is something like maybe we should have try to have some neutral think tank that just asks ask the question, which candidate is most likely to win the election? Should they be nominated? Not a crazy idea. And <laughs> and I basically agree. I mean, the amount spent in primaries are small. Mm. If you have an opinion there, you can have impact. And you know, like one crazy fact is you know which campaign almost went bankrupt in 2020, causing the candidate to drop out of the race? Biden? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, and McCain as well, I think, uh, back in 2008, yeah. yeah. It's wild that, you know, that's like... That's the margin you're operating on sometimes. Exactly. And and so, so again, I, I think it's sort of back to this if it matters, it matters type thing of like, you know, if anything matters here then like there are really impactful things to do. And I think it probably does matter. Like I think it's unlikely to be the case that the answer is all candidates are equivalent. (laughs) You know, that's like not my best guess. Yeah. I mean, there are some political systems that push really hard towards centrist positions where like candidates do end up being quite similar, but the US political system evidently is not one of them. Yeah. I think that that seems to at least not consistently be true here. I think we have some evidence about that. Yeah. And and so, yeah, I, I basically agree. I think that'd be a really impactful thing to look into. And I think there's a ton of things there where like, if you both have develop opinions and, you know, have the means to have impact, like that's a powerful combination. And, and I think the scale that you can have impact there is, is pretty, pretty substantial. And I, and I think like, you know, another thing is like, do you think, I don't know, how about like, probably it's bad. My, my guess, if I had to guess, mm-hmm. net bad, if a U.S. presidential election is stolen, yeah, I, would, I think it seems bad to me. <laughs> it seems bad, right? It seems like like probably destabilizing in a bunch of ways. And interestingly, I actually think maybe it's now a bipartisan opinion that the 2020 presidential election was in danger of being stolen. I think maybe people disagree over which direction that's in. At least some people do. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But, 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 you know. Yeah. They, they, I guess they, they both think the election was close to being stolen from them. And one group is right, I suppose. Right. <laughs> we, we, we could be agnostic about which one. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the case where a lot of people talk about how it's really important to fund races over, you know, who's the state returning officer and the state attorney yep. general and the local county, like, vote counting person who assigns. Um, where it's like these elections were until recently very obscure and they're not the kind of thing that's on the national political radar. But those, like some of these people might end up being really important in deciding whether, you know, uh, the votes determine the outcome at some future time and $10,000 for one of them might help. Completely agree with that. And I I think that's basically right. And I think that's another interesting place to look for having impact in politics. And I mean, another thing is like, I mean, you know, you can look at things like the Electoral Count Act. You can look at, you know, various federal policies for, for vote counting. But yeah, I, 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 I agree. Like you know, state attorney generals, you know, all of a sudden looks like they kind of matter, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you worry about kind of blowback to you being political in the way that you are? And I guess in terms of regulatory policy, or I guess, I guess people also just hating billionaire influence, influence in politics. Yes. <laughs> any, any, anything to add to that? I, you know, at some point, if having positive impact is your goal, there's a limit to how much it makes sense to worry about the PR of having positive impact. People being mad. 
Yeah, yeah. I suppose I'm not super psyched about the influence of billionaires in politics. It seems like problematic in some ways, and I imagine you feel you feel the same. Yep. It's just you also really want the US to remain <laughs> a country in which the votes influence the outcome of elections in a pretty clear way. Uh, That's right. And, and, and I feel certainly a lot more comfortable like impacting things in that direction, you know, in the like making things more democratic direction. Yeah, yeah. Just finally, do you have any thoughts on how listeners who are interested in giving to political causes can get more bang for buck themselves? Yeah, I, I think that I think that there are people who are doing really good and interesting work on determining the best ways to do that. And I, I think that, you know, reading what they write, listening to their recommendations can be pretty impactful. And, you know, I, I think there are some within the EA community who are doing that. Well, that brings us to the kind of end of my questions about your your philanthropic giving. Is there any kind of message you'd like to emphasize or like leave with the audience? You know, I think that really, in the end, it's what's most important in the world. And and shooting really high with it and, and trying to have as much impact with your giving as possible is just extremely important. And, and that's true of how much you give, but also of, of where you give. And, you know, we have a website now, you know, FTX Foundation website uh, that you can go to and get a lot more information on what we're doing. Hopefully it's useful for some of you guys uh, thinking about what you can do as well. Fantastic. Okay, pushing on. This isn't the main focus of the interview, but I am curious to ask you a couple of questions about the blockchain and cryptocurrencies and yep. distributed finance, or I guess people call it, the cool people call it DeFi now, and things like that. I suppose for a while, I've been unconvinced but open-minded about how many, you know, traditionally economically productive applications of blockchain technology they would ultimately turn out to be. Yeah, do you have a kind of view on that question? Yeah, so I don't know for sure, but I I do kind of think that there will be a bunch. Mm -hmm. And some of these have to do with blockchain, some have to do with crypto, and some just have to do with market structure in a way which wouldn't need to be crypto specific, but I think often does turn out to be. Mm. And so I think like one thing that I, I think I feel pretty compelled by is is just like having equitable direct access to financial markets. The current economic system is like really difficult to get good access and outcomes from for most people. If you want to buy a stock, right? Like if you want to go buy Apple stock and, and you're a typical, you know, typical consumer, like how many intermediaries do you think you're going through like from start to finish? I'm going to guess it's a few. <laughs> it's a few. It's, it's like 10. It's, it's a pretty impressive number. Hmm. And what's going on there, I think, is basically like that, well, you go from like the broker to like a PFAW firm to an ATS to another PFAW firm to an exchange as a clearing firm, a custody firm, and then the whole thing repeated on the other end. And what that means is that your actual access to markets, to most markets, is real crappy. Like you're not, you're literally not allowed to see the order books that you're trading on hmm. for most people. And these are the, these are the buy, you know, bid, sell offers basically. Exactly. Right. You're submitting orders kind of blind or trading kind of blind. You don't see market data like that, that you need to pay tens of millions of dollars a year for. That seems like a little bit insane to me. Like one of the biggest points of markets is that, you know, you get price discovery from them. Right. Hmm. And if you're not allowed to see the market data, that's like gating a really important piece of it behind like tens of millions of dollars per year per entity that wants to get market data. Hmm. So that seems kind of fucked up to me. And I think it's basically like a, a serious problem with like our, our current market structure yeah. for anyone but, you know, extremely sophisticated firms. And, and crypto for a variety of reasons is quite different in that respect. Yeah. The, the exchange just like 
holds the asset and is just directly transferred. And there's like, there's only one intermediary rather than 10. Exactly. And everyone has that same access and all the market data is completely free and public. Okay. And so I think it's like more economically efficient in in some respects as, as a market structure. And I, I think that the fact that the exchange can directly hold and clear in custody the asset means that you're removing some of the intermediaries there as well. Yeah. Which is helpful. So so that's, that's I think, like one piece of this. I think another piece is just payments. Like payments infrastructure is really bad right now in most of the world. You know, we kind of like casually give 3% of all of our, you know, purchases to credit card companies to like, you know, to sort of cover over the fact that payments infrastructure sucks. Mm. And it takes, you know, months to clear. Uh, it's just like not a well-built system for most people. And 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 I think, frankly, like stable coins actually just work a lot better on that front. And, hmm. you know, to the point where like if I want to send someone money, I would way rather send it via stable coins than traditional systems. Like I still like don't feel at all sort of conflicted about that. Hmm. So, so, so that's sort of like one piece of this. And, you know, if you want to send money back to someone in Nigeria, you're probably paying 20% and taking a week. It's a lot to lose on a remittance because, uh, like, you know, different payment rails in different countries, each one of which sucks. And, and I think, like, blockchain stablecoins are, like, a pretty good answer to that. And then the last thing is an example I feel, like, fairly compelled by social media. Hmm. So, like, what what's your favorite social media network? What do you use the most? Uh, I guess Twitter. Twitter. So, like, you know, if I'm on Facebook and I want to, like, message you, right? It's not going to pop up on your Twitter feed or in your DMs there. Those are completely non-interoperable networks, right? Mm. And I actually think it's a little bit weird that that's the case. Like, why, I don't know, like, why Why are there 30 social media networks now of which you can talk to each other? Mm. That's a pretty bad user experience. And, and I think the one thing that we all, all as a nation can agree upon, as a world can agree upon at this point, is that bad things happen when one person is the moderator for all of our content. Like, <laughs> Like, I don't know. Like, we you just know, got to make sure that they're a philosopher king, Sam. That they've they've got the right idea. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, it's like you know, we tried seeing what happens when Facebook doesn't censor and everyone hated it. Mm. Then they tried censoring and everyone hated it. Yeah. And the answer is like, yeah, it's it's like it's it's a tough. I guess. Do you think the solution is some sort of pluralism in the interface or pluralism in the filtering or curation? Right, but with the same underlying messaging protocol that everyone can draw from. So if you had on-chain messages, on-blockchain encrypted messages, then any user experience could draw on that same set of messages. So you can send someone a message from Twitter and it, it appears in their WhatsApp. That's fine. And so you get interoperability. And yeah, from like a censorship point of view, anyone can build their own you know, layer on top of it that does or doesn't censor however they want. And you know, there can be like an actual competitive marketplace for it. So that's like a vision that I feel like moderately compelled by for social media as being like better than the status quo. Yeah. Okay, well, let's, 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 let's take some of those ideas one by one. I suppose the first one about access to financial markets and disintermediation and so on. I suppose my initial reaction is like, isn't active trading among retail investors bad? Like I'm, I suppose I've got to really antagonize a bunch of your customers and people, you know, Sam Bankman Freed fans who have come to listen to this, uh, to this episode. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm a chump Sam who takes a bit of my salary every month and I go and put it into, you know, Vanguard diversified funds that invest in all kinds of different companies. And I never sell it. <laughs> I'm not going to sell until I retire. And I just kind of buy and hold and I don't actively trade. And I suspect that for me and for many people, that's kind of the best thing to do. And if I started like buying and selling things all the time, I would lose money and, and I'd be wasting my wasting my mental energy. Do we really want to encourage more people to like get into the market in that way? So I think 
I think there's some valid points about, you know, extremely active trading by novices back and forth without, you know, adding information to markets particularly. But let's take another hypothetical. When you invest in Vanguard, right? And that's that's what most people do, right? They'll put some some whatever, some ETF, some mutual fund, right? Yeah. They'll buy some some stuff. What sort of stuff is it buying? Like, what is your fund manager investing in on your behalf? Well, I guess they're going out into the stock market and buying stuff using this annoying process that you've described. Right. So that's one thing. And and, and another thing they're doing, by the way, is like, I don't know, charging you fees because you can't buy stuff yourself. But mm. whatever. Let, let's put that aside for a second. Although I do think that's relevant. I think there are some other like interesting things going on there. One of which is like, um, well, okay, what what companies are you getting exposure to? If that's your investing method. Yeah, I get, well, I suppose it's like publicly traded companies on stock markets. Right. So there, there's this weird thing where like also you're probably not going to be getting like the best deals ever. You make sure the first $5 billion go to VC firms in any company mm. before it goes public, right? And it's been so thoroughly researched by professionals that there's no way that an individual trader could add real information to its market and like make money as a result. Mm. So I think it's sort of like sectioning off a lot of the like most valuable investment opportunities for most people. Mm. And I think that's like not great. And I think it's also the case that like you take a few steps more sophisticated, say a small trading firm, Mm. right? And like a small trading firm, like are they going to be willing to spend $50 million of expenses per year to get the connectivity you need to have real market access? Like, I don't know, that's a lot, like maybe not. And so even if you're not talking about retail, but but talking about like... Professionals, it it limits limits access or it limits the ability to do innovation and disruptive stuff as as trading firms even. Yeah, I think that's basically right. And and so I, I think there's like cost there as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So maybe we'll get a chance to come back to that some other time. On the social media and messaging thing. So firstly, if everyone is sending messages to one another on a blockchain, doesn't it mean that you have to have this insanely enormous blockchain that's going to be, you know, thousands of terabytes of data that everyone has to be validating all the time just to send messages? So it definitely does get more expensive. Yeah. I think it's like not prohibitively expensive, but I do think this is a really generating thing behind like what requirements do you have of a blockchain? Mm. So how many social media messages are sent per second ballpark in the world? Oh, I guess I could expose right. something about my own use if I estimate from that, but I don't know, a million? Yeah, I think that's like, that's the ballpark, mm. you know, something like a million. I don't know. You could think of it like, well, there's whatever, 10 billion people, there aren't actually 10 billion, but whatever that's about, mm. right? You know, there is what, a hundred thousand seconds in a day. And so that would get you down to like, you know, if you, Take 10 billion divided by like 100,000, that gets you down to like 100,000. Is that right? So, so I guess this would mean that on average, each human was sending a message every thousand seconds, which seems kind of right. Maybe if anything, conservative, but yeah, a million to 10 million, maybe. Yeah. So let's say that's a ballpark, right? Like, you know, very roughly. If you wanted to do this, you would need to have a network that could process like about a million TPS. So Ethereum right now can process about 10 TPS, not 10 million, but 10. <laughs> so, okay, it's not it's not going on Ethereum 1. Yeah. Um, ETH 2, well, it, it's an interesting thing. So ETH 2 can process, well, it doesn't exist, but, but you know, it's, it's meant to process, I don't know, 1,000 TPS per shard. Hmm. So now you have like, what's per shard mean? Well, you've got all of these copies of this blockchain running in parallel. And like each one has a few thousand transactions per second. And like with an expensive like 30 minute long process or something, you can like try and synchronize these with each other. Hmm. So I don't know, what's that mean? That, well, it means you definitely can't have like social media on a shard of Ethereum, Hmm. on on a shard of ETH2 even. 
could you do it across many shards? Well, maybe, but like if I'm trying to Facebook message you and you're like, I'm using Ethereum shard 78, and I'm like, oh, I'm using <laughs> shard 173. And you're like, yeah, guess we can't talk then. <laughs> you have to end the friendship. Right, that's right. So that's, that's probably not the best outcome. So, so I think it's tough. Now, how about newer blockchains? So, so you have like Solana, which is at like 50,000 TPS right now. Mm. That's like getting closer. It's not enough, but you know, that's, that's, you know, one twentieth of the target or something. Mm. And so like it could maybe handle it until 5% of the world was using this for their social media. Yeah. You could handle like all the United States social media or something, but not all global social media. That's like, okay, that's getting, that's actually not crazy. Like that is, that is some, some actual scale and anticipation. And, and this is dependent on that happening. But the anticipation is that it will likely scale over the next, you know, five years to be substantially bigger than it is today and able to handle probably something like a million TPS. But like with high error bars, I basically think that the fastest blockchains will probably, but not certainly, get to the point over the next five years where they are able to handle like all the world's social media yeah. on chain. But 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 it's not it's not like a blowout that they will be able to. Like it, it's it's you know it's boiling. Um, it, it, yeah, it's borderline. And, and so I think that is like, you know, that that is a factor here is like, you know, are we going to be able to fit it all on chain? And I think the answer is, I think so. I'd be, I think it'd be like pretty bad luck if we never got there, but it's going to take like the fastest chain we can make effectively to be able to. Yeah. Okay. So another naive concern I might have is, so, so now all of my encrypted personal messages, all of my, all of my posts are like encrypted, but public. So they're all on this public blockchain that in theory is stored forever if either person's private keys are ever leaked somehow, then people can just read all of their messages and, and they can't like withdraw the information that, that, that they've put out publicly. I mean, to some extent, I might almost trust Facebook to, to store my messages yep. like more securely because at least people can't access their, their database directly. Yep. Yeah, that is, that is a worry. There are some things you can do to make that less bad, but they do have some costs. So rather than just directly encrypting it with, you know, so that if someone else leases you know, leaks their private key. Hmm. It's just, it's now public. You could do a thing where like what you're actually encrypting is like a pointer to it, which is then stored on some other service or something. And but at some point uh, gets destroyed, I suppose. Yeah. So, hmm. you know, somewhere it's not held permanently. That's like a thing you could imagine doing, but it's not a perfect answer. And I do think that concerns like that are, 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 are like real. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's something that, that would have to be, have to be dealt with. But I suppose you're just generally optimistic that lots of these technical problems that people like me are going to be worried about will ultimately be solved in the fullness of time because there's so many, so many minds working on it. Yeah. And I would not say I'm completely confident they will be, but I think I am optimistic they will be. Yeah. So we talked a bunch about, I suppose, markets and communication tech there. Are there any good examples of businesses producing like real non-crypto, non-market related goods and services today that wouldn't have been possible or would have been a lot less productive if, you know, Bitcoin and all of the follow through inventions had, had never had never been? And I assume you're, you're not going to count like remittance, like you're oh, okay. remittance. So, so, I, so I think I, I didn't challenge remittances because I think remittances is, is legit. Although, I mean, you might just end up seeing Western Union survive, but greatly reduce its profits. Uh, so right. it might reduce their rents. But, but that seems legit. But I guess I'm curious, like, you know, is someone making cars like using this in some use of way or someone making or, or giving massages or whatever? Right. I think there are things you could do. I think there basically aren't current examples outside of finance. Okay. Um, yeah. I think there could be. I think that in social media is one. I, I think, you know, others like, you know, medical records, right? Like being able to have access to your own medical records and being able to easily give access to another hospital of your medical records and things like that. Yeah. No one's actually really doing that right now, but mm. I think in theory that could be valuable. So yeah, I, I think basic answer is like, not 
a lot today, but in theory. In theory, yeah, yeah. I suppose there's going to be people in the audience kind of shouting at me in their in their heads saying, but, but what about normal markets? Like you don't, you don't hold like the stock market to, to this level. And it, I guess at some point the hope would be that companies are getting funding through these systems, that, that, that they've, they've found much yeah. easier ways to raise capital, say, to start a business. And then, and then we really could talk about businesses that simply would, it would have been too prohibitive to get them off the ground without, without these kinds of you know, financial yeah. innovations effectively. I think this, that, that's right. And I think that is, that is definitely part of the, the hope. Right, yeah. A listener wrote in, and I'm sure you get this question from time to time. They said, there's a lot of people who hate crypto and think it's bad for society on the whole, I guess for environmental reasons, among others. I'm curious as to whether Sam thinks the way he earned his money was positive or bad for society. Yeah, I think it's I think it's probably positive. I mean, I think that it's, you know, for sort of the reasons I've gave, I, given, I, I think that it had, uh, you know, positive impact on the world, you know, just like financial inclusion, equitable access, like better, more efficient markets. I don't want to like oversell that and, and, and try and claim something that like, I don't, you know, think about it. And, and, and I don't want to like, you know, necessarily say that I'm saying that this is like the best thing that you could imagine. In terms of direct impact that it was right. the best thing you couldn't possibly could have done. Yeah. But I, I do think it was positive. Yeah. I guess, do, do you have any response to, I suppose maybe the main concern that people have is the effect on climate change that it's using yep. tons of energy. Yeah. Do you have any reaction to that? Yeah. So I think like it is, it is a concern. I think there are ways to deal with it. So first of all, this is like exclusively a concern with proof of work blockchains. Proof of stake blockchains have effectively no climate impact. Mm. And, and yeah. the reason... It, and they're kind of a growing share. They're likely to take over ultimately, right? That, yeah. So like as of now, 80% of deposits and withdrawals on FTX use proof of stake blockchains. Okay. Even when people are trying to transfer a Bitcoin, they will often put that Bitcoin on a proof of stake chain and transfer it using that. Because even if you don't care about the environment at all, just the economic cost of the energy usage is significant mm. for a proof of work blockchain. So in addition to climate reasons, like for that reason, there has to be better ways to do it. And and so I think like we're definitely moving towards a world where the vast majority of transactions happen on proof of stake blockchains. That's the biggest thing. You know, we also buy carbon impact offsets for, you know, all the proof of work transfers that happen. And we also invest in, you know, climate change R&D. But I think the biggest thing is just transitioning to mostly proof of stake and certainly like as it scales that all of that scaling happens through, through proof of, uh, of stake networks. Yeah, I suppose another response would be that you you didn't make Bitcoin. You're you're a platform that people traded on, and Bitcoin would still exist even if FTX didn't exist. So to some extent, you're substitutable in in, in, yep. in that regard. Yeah, some listeners to this show actually quite a lot would like to have a positive impact on the world by working to develop you know distributed finance and other blockchain related innovations. How promising do you think that that space is at, at this point? So, I mean, it depends on what standard you're holding it to, right? Like, I, I think it's like fairly promising on the like you're going to go do something financy i think it like has probably more positive impact than most things you can do in finance and i, and I think like you know probably extends to a lot of jobs I, I i don't necessarily want to say like you know you can either like work on aix risk or like blockchain tech directly like which mm. which i don't know i would say aix risk so you know i yeah. mean I think it's a question of like are you saying like is this the most pressing problem for the world right now or is this like a net positive thing to do and like you know, commensurate or, or above that with like, you know, the, you know, just direct economic, economic effects of it or something. Are there any, you know, socially positive, uh, socially beneficial applications of blockchain tech that you, you'd want to highlight potentially for listeners? I think like remittances, equitable access to finance and, and social media are, are probably like the, the biggest things that I would point to right now. Yeah. I'm sure you get this question 
daily. But if you had to kind of buy and hold one crypto asset for 10 years, what would it be? Or if there's multiple, uh, let us know if there's more than one. Yep. Uh, I definitely, you know, want to be careful about giving financial advice here. You know, I, I think I'll, I will give a, a maybe it's a, a little bit of a non-answer, but I will say that technology wise, like I definitely think that Solana is the layer one blockchain I've been most impressed by. I think the team is quite strong. And I think that they, they've had the right vision, I think, for how to scale a blockchain massively. I think they've done a good job executing on it. Obviously, it's up in price a lot over the last year and a half, and you can make your own judgments about what the fair value is for it. Mm. But, you know, I, I think in terms of the, the tech, it's been the one I've been most impressed by. Okay, yeah. So some, yeah, listeners, uh, diversify, diversify, diversify. Um, <laughs> let's back up quite a bit and talk about your personal story. Because I think it's... Uh, it's super interesting. And I mean, you know, all billionaires are a little bit quirky and have their own interesting origin story, but I think your one is uh, particularly interesting. Yeah. Where did your interest in effective altruism and related ideas about doing good originally come from? Yeah. So, I mean, originally, originally, I guess, you know, my, my parents have been sort of interested in utilitarianism since way before I was born. And, you know, when I when sort of growing up, I like explored it a bit online and, and sort of like in theory was utilitarian, but without any particular follow through somewhat intentionally, I don't know, it seemed like follow through would be hard and scary. (laughs) Easier to sort of think without justification that maybe there's nothing you could do. Yeah. It's interesting how that is. So like from one point of view, utilitarianism as a philosophy is incredibly pragmatic and practical. And yet it's so hard to see what it implies exactly on a day-to-day basis that it seems like the philosophy was almost completely disconnected from people taking action until almost like very recently for some reason. Yeah, I agree it does seem like it took a long time for it to start to like have more impact than like when people considered a political position, like what, you know, a policy yeah. position or something. And yeah, so I, I don't know, got to college, not, not doing much and met a friend of mine who was, was in a bit of a similar position. And I think the, the, the like thing that first sort of became concrete to us was like animal welfare and factory farms. Like that was sort of a little bit of the proof of like, the answer isn't that there's nothing you can do. Mm. Like the answer isn't that, you know, whatever, like you can't impact the world, nothing matters. Or I, I don't know. It's sort of like, okay, that, that's a pretty massive scale problem. Yeah. Do you remember who persuaded you of that? So it was something that had been bouncing around in the back of my mind for a while. I think Peter Singer was like one of the people who like first sort of like inserted that in, in my mind. Yeah. But that had been sort of like ignoring. And, and then I met my friend Adam at, at college who, and, and, and we sort of like, you know, talked about it. And, and we're both sort of like, yeah, I can't really, I don't know can't really justify eating meat either. Yeah. And over the course of freshman year, he kind of slowly went went vegetarian. I tried to as well and made no progress. I don't know. It's like, would just try and decide what I want to eat and like think for a bit and then get a cheeseburger. It's, it's like most of what I did for freshman year. Interesting. Okay. So, so it wasn't, it didn't immediately bite in terms of your behavior. There's a... I, no, I tried to, but I, I, I just kind of failed. Like I, I sort of like huh. wanted to... But I didn't know how to how to create that change in myself, and and the, like the willpower cost was pretty large. So 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 that, that slightly surprises me because like at this point you're just so committed to working really hard to change things, yeah. and yet it seems like that that wasn't an immediate thing. That that, that like took oh, that, that kind of characteristic took a while to to germinate. It did, and and I, and I think that like you know over the course of the year I made I was probably at like twenty percent vegetarian or something by the end of the school year, okay. and I was eating tofu one one night, and a friend said, "Hey, well, hey Sam, are you vegetarian now?" I said, "Yes." <laughs> and it was, it was not true. I mean, I, I had a burger for lunch. Yeah. Um, but, but, I, but I said, yes, it just seemed like the answer to give. And, and I, I, I haven't eaten meat since then. Interesting. 
yeah, it was for me like this sort of like slowly cutting it out just like made absolutely no progress and going cold turkey just worked immediately. Mm. And it was like I had to re- reframe myself in my own mind as someone who didn't eat meat in order – the problem I ran into is otherwise every single fucking meal I would have a decision yeah, to make. It's a decision. And it's yeah, brutal. It's terrible. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, completely. So, okay, so, so, so I did that and I started getting kind of more into to like factory farm animal welfare and exploring online – you know, went from blog to blog, ended up on Felicifia, which is a, you know, old utilitarian forum now now defunct. Yeah, that was, so this would have been around 2010 or 2011 yeah, or something like that. Yeah, wow. I think it's probably 2011. So yeah, so this, uh, I don't know whether web forums like that still exist, but this was, you know, a place where you'd sign up and create an account and then you would create threads and chat about topics that people would raise. And this was a forum about utilitarianism and it attracted pretty quirky, like philosophically interested people who, and I guess it was a place where people were bouncing around lots of ideas that ultimately kind of ended up getting picked up by, by effective altruism and long-termism. Yeah. I think that, that that's right. It was, it was a pretty cool place actually. I mean, it's only there briefly. It yeah. sort of came not that long before its demise, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I know that, that's sort of what, what started to introduce me to people who eventually were part of the EA community and then one day, neither of us can remember how Will somehow, Will McCaskill somehow like emailed me and said, hey, I'm giving mm-hmm. a talk in, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Do you want to get lunch beforehand? And I did. And that was my first like real formal introduction to EA. And, 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 and that was sort of like the turning point of where I was like actually became part of the community. Yeah. Just backing up slightly. So you said you were raised by two law professors who I guess in their academic life advocate kind of a utilitarian philosophical approach to yeah. law and I guess to life as well, maybe. Yeah. But I suppose, is it because they're, they're at the intellectual level where they're, they're thinking about things philosophically that maybe you got a bit stuck with like, you know, the utilitarian thing is to hold utilitarian opinions, but not necessarily to, to actually take action on them? Yeah. I mean, I think it was, I think that it's sort of like, had some impact on what they did. And I, I think that over the course of their careers also, they've started working on more and more actionable things. And I think like they've both mm. done a bunch of things outside of their sort of like standard job remit at this point. And, and, and by this point, I think I actually are working on like incredibly impactful things, but I think it was also like not how almost anyone was thinking about the issues, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So Often people rebel against the attitudes and beliefs of their parents, but it sounds like you and your brother have kind of ended up uh, agreeing with your parents mostly. Do you have any idea of why why that is? How you ended up having like quite distinctive but similar views? I think it's like, I don't know, I didn't feel like a lot of need to rebel particularly. Mm-hmm. I think they seemed like pretty correct to me. And, and like, I don't know, there's like some specific subtopics where I've sort of disagreed a bit with them but i don't know it's it a good upbringing it wasn't like there wasn't a whole lot of you know anger or angst about it to like you know yeah. to sort of cause that yeah okay so basically you just like them <laughs> you're a family that gets along so it's like easier for the easier for the views to get transmitted yeah. down the generations um i mean do you think there's like any biological aspect to to the views that you have is it like just cultural or do you think there could be more to it uh, like in terms of temperament perhaps that you're born with i think there's probably more to anything like thinking quantitatively about things is probably a piece of this like you know thinking more on the sort of like more cognitive and rational side and less emotional side about impact on the world is like probably part of this 
I wonder if you are you just kind of it seems like emotionally you're like relatively level yeah and, uh possibly the other people in your family are and maybe just when you're just like you just feel kind of the same regardless of what the topic of conversation is or how your day is going then it's easier to like intellectualize things like this and to and to take like intellectually consistent philosophical views rather than respond to how how you're feeling or what, what your like intuitive reaction is to things yeah, I, I think I tend to have like relatively low emotional swings and, and, and some of that is probably just genetic and environmental. Some of it, is, I think, is also a little bit trained. Mm. Like I think some of that is, is I sort of like think it's a, the right thing to do in analyzing things, try and be dispassionate. And yeah. um, and so I try and sort of take my own my own emotional perspective out of it and, and, and think more about just like how does this fit in the world? You know, I try not to see things in the light of me personally as much as I can. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense that that leads to this kind of universal perspective, moral philosophy attitude. Okay, so at some point during your undergrad, it's the second or third year of undergrad, you met Will McCaskill. Some, somehow you two ended up connecting and you started chatting about how you might have impact. Is that right? Yeah, so we, you know, started chatting like at lunch. and We still remember how we got introduced. And, you know, basically he sort of pitched EA to me. It seemed like obviously right. And, you know, started diving in to to ask the community and, and rethinking what I wanted to do with my life. Talked with him, talked with Ben Todd about what to do with my career. And I sort of like hadn't had any ideas. I was pretty lost. And, you know, they sort of like pitched a bunch of things, including earning to give. Hmm. And that seemed like a pretty compelling opportunity for me, given that I was sort of a physics major at MIT who didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Hmm. And I had some friends who'd interned on Wall Street and so applied. Yeah. So... It sounds like one of the biggest impacts that Will and I guess this sort of intellectual scene had was just getting you to seriously ask the question, yeah. like, what do my moral views imply about what I ought to do with my career? Because it seems like it wasn't a question that you'd been like seriously dwelling on very much before. I think it's basically right. It's it's super fascinating that it's such an obvious idea that would be like, well, you know, I'm going to spend all this time in my career, during my life. I have particular moral values. What do my moral values say would be the best thing to do? Right. And especially being like open-minded about that and really thinking it through. It's just like, was so uncommon. And and even for someone, you know, as incredibly smart as, as yourself, like basically no one was really thinking this way until kind of at least the 2000s. I think it's basically right. And, and I agree. It's sort of weird and confusing. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So, so you were chatting with Will and Ben about like various different things. And why did Only to Give kind of stand out for you? So I think basically like part of this was a sort of like differential skill set type thing. Like it was, I don't know, sort of like physics major from MIT who doesn't know what they want to do is like the classic profile for someone to go on Wall Street, which was one of the highest potential earning careers. And so that, that was like a, a decent piece of this. And, you know, I, I think outside of that, like it seemed like something I could try quickly. Like it just, mm try interning that summer and like see what happened and see if I, if I was a good fit. And, and then I did things like, you know, I, I like talked to the humane leaders like, yeah, like, would you rather have like me as an employee or like my donations, like definitely your donations. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, and so, uh, so yeah. I ended up doing so in, in, in no way insulting. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Interesting. So you were kind of weighing up, like, here's the impact that I would have if I became a staff member of these organizations, alternatively, potentially I could make enough money to fund five other people in my place. So it was that, it was that sort yeah, of reasoning that right. led you towards, you're like, oh, my comparative advantage in the system probably is the, is the money. Yeah. In, in those early days, did you have any kind of reservations maybe, or like were there downsides mentally to starting to take this attitude towards your career? Like maybe it started to feel uh, like a burden in some ways, or 
you felt like now I now I don't feel like I have the choice to kind of do whatever I want. I feel pressure, even just like internally imposed pressure to to do the thing that's that's most good. A little bit, but not. So there's definitely a part of me that felt that, but it didn't feel like the most important part of me. Mm. Like maybe I'd analogize it to like you know, I mean, you you don't eat meat, right? Like when you see a steak, are you are you like, man, it sucks that I can't eat that and. I actually, I would like, I, I, I'd like steak. Like I, I would enjoy eating it, but, but I don't. And, and it, it, it's, and sometimes I'm less happy maybe than if, than if I did, but, but like also it doesn't feel like a sacrifice each time or something like that. Like it's sort of like, mm. that's who I am. And, and I think this felt a little bit like that. Like it felt like the right thing to do. And, and these helped me not dwell on like, you know, alternatives. Yeah. Around that, that time, how did your ideas develop about what problems in the world were potentially most pressing to work on, where, where you ultimately might want to give your money? Was that something that you were maybe a decision you were deferring to later? Partially deferring. I, I think it sort of developed a little bit in the background and like a little bit just with more exposure to EA. And I, I think I spent a while grappling with my thoughts on AI and like, I think it took me like a year or two to get comfortable with it as like an important cause potentially the most important cause area. And, and I think, you know, even since then, I've had a lot of skepticism about a lot of the specific approaches to it. But I do think it's like worth splitting that out and saying that like, you know, it's possible to be skeptical of every single approach anyone has ever tried to mitigating AIX risk and still think that it is the most important thing in the world if one were to find a good approach to it, which is I think like closer to where I am. Now, and I think it's like really important to have that second part so you don't sort of get stuck in the like, well, I haven't liked any before, thus this cause area doesn't matter or something. Yeah, yeah. So I guess in 2012, 13, I imagine you were kind of meeting more people who were involved in effective altruism and reading the kinds of things that were coming out of the Future of Humanity Institute and uh, the other like yep. research sources around that time. Yeah, how how helpful did you find all of that? Um. Yeah, not that helpful. Um, I is, is the honest answer. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't bad. I, I think like the the high level stuff I found I found like helpful for generating, like getting me to think about the right things. But but I think I also I felt that a lot of the more specific work was not adding that much on that. Yeah, yeah. I suppose your answer doesn't super surprise me, but. Um... Some people might think, oh, you know, meeting all of these people that like made me more motivated. It made me feel more excited about the ideas because I now had friends that is who were, had the same views. Okay, so th- so there's that aspect. Yeah, and then maybe I suppose reading more uh, the, the the people were uh, were writing about this stuff could have made you feel more intellectually convinced or more feeling like you're not getting tricked by some stupid ideas. Oh, or it could have had the reverse effect potentially. <laughs> A little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I suppose one thing might be that, that it seems like you kind of formed a reasonable plan about what you wanted to do relatively quickly. Yeah. And so you weren't like, oh, no, I desperately need to go away and learn all this stuff in order because I'm like now in this, I have a lot of existential angst about <laughs> my direction. Yeah, there, there's sort of like parallels to people saying like, well, you know, what about, you know, you say that you're like a consequentialist, but like, you know, what if being a consequentialist pisses people off and that has bad consequences? <laughs> So like, yeah, that's part of the consequences that you go in your fucking calculation. And, and like similar, I, I think here it's sort of like, well, wasting time trying to decide what to do is part of what you've decided to do that should go in your calculation of what your right career path is. And like choosing to stall for four years and learn and then go down career path X is a different career path than just going straight down career path X and you should compare those. Yeah. And like 
you know, the straight down career path X might be a better decision than the like waffling one. And I think it often is. And, and, and so I think that was like, that I think felt pretty natural to me that like, you know, what, what am I really gaining by stalling here? Yeah. Back in those days, you had a blog where you were regularly writing about these issues <laughs> and I guess also sports analytics and I guess election, election polls as well. Yeah. Are there any posts or things that you wrote from that time that you remember, remember fondly? Or I, I was writing around that time and I cringe at a lot of, the, a lot of the things that I wrote back then. Yeah. Oh, some of them are certainly cringy. Uh, I know I, I had fun. I, I enjoyed doing a lot of the stuff that some of this in like on the sports side, I, I like still, there's a small part of me that really wants to be a baseball general manager and like, you know, fuck with the team. Like, I mean, I, I feel like pretty compelled that like no pitcher should ever pitch more than like two or three innings in game ever. Mm. And no pitcher should, well, this might go away soon with rules changes, but, like no pitcher should ever hit. Um, you should always pinch it. We can so, consider that as a new ADK cause area, maybe. That's right. I think so. <laughs> You know, putting putting that aside for a second, I, I think that there were like a few things that it, that I kind of got from that that have stuck with me. I think like one of them is multiplicative causes. Like mm. if you think the ultimate good is like the product of a bunch of things, the math changes versus if you think it's like the sum of a bunch of things. Mm. Like if it's a product of, of a bunch of things, first of all, it like encourages diversification often. And second, it means that often the a lot of the expected values in the upside tails. Yeah. Like you get sort of the exponential distribution. And, and, and so I think that like, that is something I kind of do think and think that people underestimate that fact and don't shoot high enough because of that. And then there's just some things I enjoyed, like, I don't know, writing, I don't know about like how I think people overestimate the importance of like old things and the goodness of old <laughs> things. And like, I kind of think you should judge them by his, by current standards, not historical standards. That's a it's a cause close to my heart as well. I think so oh, yeah. there's a lot of, there's a lot of <laughs> lot of past dependence in what people think is uh, is the very best. Oh yeah, yeah. The best time to have written a play, if you want people to think it was great, is the 15th century. Apparently, apparently. I mean, it's you know every every play written then is great. Who knew? Incredible. So when you graduated, you went to work at a proprietary trading firm called Jane Street, which quite a lot of listeners might have heard of over the years because quite a lot of people involved in the effective altruism community and people trying to earn to give in general have gone to work there. I guess the case in favor is relatively straightforward. I mean, well, I guess people say it's a really enjoyable place to live. You build up lots of really good skills. It's like enjoyable for the kinds of people who listen to this show. And also it pays very well, so you can do a lot of earning to give there. But if you can recall, what, kind of, what was the best argument against taking that path? Yeah, I think the best argument against was just that there are other things I could do with my life instead, and and maybe I should look at those. I I don't think at the time I, I felt like there was any compelling sort of negatives of Jane Street so much as like I don't know maybe other things are good too. Yeah. So yeah, what other things did you seriously consider then that might have been competitive in terms of impact? Yeah, I, I think at the time, and I, I've obviously thought about it more since then. But but at the time, I think the biggest things I was thinking of one was journalism. I I don't think I had like a, an extremely concrete like this is what. I would do in journalism type thing, although he blogged a little bit. But I, I, I think it was like, well, you know, journalists seem to have really outsized impact on society. Mm. There are people who millions hang on the words of. And it has this sort of nice property from the angle of being like under monetized, I think. Mm. Like if you sort of look at what is the main impact of journalism, like I think its impact on the world is way bigger than like it's sort of actual like compensation is mm. because you have all these people who like really care what like appears in print, but don't actually pay much for it. And so, so anyway, it sort of seemed like maybe an outsized like impact on society type thing. Mm. That was like one direction. Um, you know, I was thinking a little bit about potentially politics. Yeah. And again, like, and I don't think I had like an extremely concrete sense of what that would mean. 
but it seemed like potentially high impact. And so we sort of thought, you know, whatever politicians seem to have big impact on the world, like again, under monetized, like yeah. maybe means that it's sort of like inefficient in the direction of more impact. And, and I don't know, like maybe doing my own trading thing. I had no idea what that would actually look like at the time. Yeah. Maybe going to work for an EA or I, I didn't have concrete thoughts on like which one or what I'd do there. And, and I guess what was the main factor that kind of pushed you in favor of earning to give over those other ones? I think it was like partially, I don't know, it, I like interned at Jane Street and had a really good time there and seemed like a good fit. And so that seemed like, you know, a positive update for that. The, the numbers of like what one could potentially make there seemed substantial. Mm. And so it seemed like, you know, this is a good fit, could make a lot of money, sort of talk with people what that would look like. And like in general, people seem to think like, oh, yeah, that seems pretty good if you can do that. And, and you know, nothing else seemed like extremely concrete and compelling. It was all sort of like, I don't know, maybe there are other good things yeah. type stuff. Yeah, I guess thinking back, I suppose a factor that would have like loomed pretty large in my mind would be kind of what's your comparative advantage relative to the people you're coordinating with? Like out of all of the people yeah. we had, we probably had, uh, you probably weren't in the top percent of like riding ability across the EA community because we just had some extraordinary riders at that time. But you probably were in like the top 10% in terms of your trading ability or, or, or earning capacity. Yeah. Um, so maybe that kind of was an important factor. I think that's basically right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I suppose in 2012, you did a bit of a reevaluation of your career and you actually even, then you actually did an internship at an effective altruist org. You tried out being a fundraiser at the Center for Effective Altruism for a month or two. Yeah. What was kind of the the key considerations that you were weighing up at at that point? Yeah. So I think this is, this is looking at 20, uh, 2017 when I, uh, you know, when I left Jane Street and I mean, again, I don't want to sort of portray this as being more confident than it was because it, it wasn't super confident. Like mm. this is all me just trying to make the best decisions I could given sort of like, you know, incomplete information here and stuff. But I think the biggest things that I was thinking about at the time were, well, basically I, I just got out a piece of paper and forced myself for the first time in three and a half years, basically first time since I joined Jane Street to like think quantitatively and moderately carefully about what I could do with my life. Mm. And so I just like got a piece of paper and wrote down, what are like the 10 things that seem most compelling to me right now? And like evaluate the expected value of, of each of them. Like, you know, just like, like ballpark it. I often find that that's kind of quite hard or I feel like a lot of people might try to do that. They'll try to put down numbers and stuff and they just kind of get stuck. And so I'm like, I'm not always really sure how useful that is as a suggestion to give to people, but you found that it worked for you. I did. And, 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 and like, I, I agree that it's pretty difficult to like, like, I don't know, it, you, you can get a lot of different answers from doing that. And, mm-hmm. and, and so I, I don't want to sort of like oversell it as a technique, but what, what I do think it did, which was pretty helpful was it just forced me, like, I don't think it would have, you know, sort of distinguished between like two about equally good opportunities and told me like which one of them was slightly more equally good or whatever. Mm. I think what it did do was force me to even just come up with order of magnitude estimates. Okay. You know, it's sort of just like, well, okay, at least I can do something here. Yeah. And like, that's better than doing nothing. So my, I guess it might cause you to notice if something is just completely dominated, where it's like otherwise possible that if you were just being really vague about things, you might even not notice that. I think that's basically right. That, that was sort of like part of the impetus behind it was like, look, maybe it's going to end up looking like messy and indeterminate and like, okay, sure. And, and then, then maybe it's really hard to get a good estimate, but let's at least see if that is the case. Yeah. And, you know, and I think things like that can be super helpful. I think like, as an example, like you just write down like, you know, a sort of Fermi estimate for like how important is AIX risk. Hmm. And I think you end up saying like, oh, wow, there are some big numbers here. Like it, it doesn't 
say conclusively that it is definitely the best thing or anything like that, mm. right? But I think what it does is it sort of says like, okay, like this seems like worth investigating more. Like I've got some giant factors here and like I don't feel extremely convinced that those should be dismissed. Yeah. So sort of how I was thinking about this was much more from the perspective of basically like, well, you know, like let's at least just see if the answer is like, you know, what the Botech does say, so to yeah. speak. Botech is a backer of the envelope calculation and acronym uh, for that. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, were there any things that you discarded at, at that stage? So I'm going to be honest, I didn't get that far into the Botech. Hmm. And the reason that I didn't get that far into the Botech was that I spent like maybe two minutes starting to write things down, you know, and so it's sort of like, well, let me list out options, you know, listed out like three of them. Hmm. And by the time I'd listed out like three or so options, I sort of like started to get a sense of where it was probably going to go. Yeah. And I sort of started from the top down of like, what are the most compelling things here, right? Like w- yeah. which of these seem like highest EV? And like the the thing that I saw, which was really interesting was first of all, really high uncertainty over everything. Like I, I really did not feel confident in most of this. Mm. Second of all though was, well, there were a lot of things that I thought were kind of compelling to try doing with my life. Mm. And they all were getting like, I, I would say like comparable-ish order of magnitude estimates for expected value and, and like really was not clear how to order them. Yeah. And and it was not clear where Jane Street fell within them either. Like I, I remain mm. sort of very excited about Jane Street and like it scored pretty highly on this, you know, but like so did like five other things. Okay. And, and I sort of like started thinking about this and, and the sense I got pretty quickly was like, I could think about this for a while. I suspect where I'm going to end up is that, oh, there's actually a lot of plausible things here Hmm. and I don't know which is best. And it seemed like pretty implausible to me that I would end up thinking like, oh yeah, no, obviously like X is the best here. It's not even close. Yeah, Like that didn't seem like it was going to happen. So what did you do given that? Yeah, so so given that, what's that mean? What that meant, I guess, in the end for me was like, well, I mean, okay, so, so there's a lot of things that seem like kind of compelling the thing I was doing was one of them. And hmm. and naively, that might make you think that the right thing to do is just like keep doing that, you know? You might think, well, it's kind of fine. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's nothing obviously better, so I'll just carry on. Exactly. And so, so okay, that, that was one interpretation. It was not my interpretation. My hmm. interpretation of it was huge uncertainty. I'm not going to be able to figure out which of these is best without trying. Hmm. Like you look at like politics as an option, and just like, I, like who the fuck knows how that's going to end up, right? Like, yeah. I mean, like very well could be that like it's it, it turns out being completely worthless. It could be like massive impact. Like I don't, I, I kind of like was pretty skeptical of my ability to do better than I'd done so far on mm. the, you, you know, just really rough estimate. And, and what that made me think basically was, you know, I kind of think the only way for me to really know what the right thing to do is, is going to be to try. Yeah. Like the only real way for me to resolve this is to dive in, start doing some of these things. Right. And like, see which is highest EV in practice. Yeah. So I guess like the value of information is super high if you're very uncertain about a bunch of different options, but also you think like you might be able to resolve the uncertainty about which one is best by actually giving it a go. That's right. And, 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 you know, so, so, okay. So value of information, super high. Why does that mean not Jane Street, though? Because it was one of the high ones. Hmm. And the answer, like, in the end, what compelled me was, like, I've done a lot of research on Jane Street. It's actually one of the lowest uncertainty ones. Yeah. Like, at that point, I'd sort of determined it was, like, 
about X and like, you know, X was like about the average of the other kind of like top five things. But also that I could stay there and just like keep going on the trajectory. And I did feel pretty excited about that. But like, I wasn't getting any more information from that. I had already explored that path and it it seemed like pretty good. It seemed unlikely it was going to turn out to be literally the best of those options. Mm. Like probably one was going to turn out to be better, although I didn't know which one. And that I probably could get a lot of information about those others. And so it's high value of information because the high uncertainty. And that in particular, like, you know, the path that I was on was the one for which I had low uncertainty. Yeah. And that was in the end, I think, like... So you were learning the least from that. Exactly. And that, that's what compelled me in the end that, like, I should try out something else. Yeah. So you tried out a bunch of different things. I guess, yeah, one of the things that you started trying out around that time, not that long after that, was trying to run this cryptocurrency trading firm. Yep. I guess my initial reaction to that was, when I heard about it on the grapevine, was was kind of mixed because I, I was thinking, you know, don't we already have billions of dollars that open fill that open philanthropy is finding quite hard to give as fast as it would like to to give? So yep. no, maybe rather than make more money that then we're like struggling to disperse, maybe Sam should work on, on the key bottleneck here, which I guess would mean becoming a grant maker. So trying to figure out how to take the, the money that's already available and, and disperse it efficiently yep. rather than <laughs> moving uh, working on the stage before that and getting even more money to, uh, to give away. I guess, obviously, I feel like a bit of an idiot <laughs> to have thought that in retrospect, uh, that that opinion doesn't look so good. But yeah, what, what do you think I was getting wrong then? If indeed ex ante, I, I, I was getting something wrong. Yeah, and it's interesting. I'm not totally sure that getting something wrong is our interpretation also. Like, I mean, there was, you know, it, it, like I, I see why it was compelling, you mm. know? And and I think what I'd say instead would be something like, you know, it was, uh, I don't know what the right, thing was necessarily and I, I don't think it'd be crazy to have thought that like this was not the thing you were most excited about hmm. of all these things that like look there there's a lot of exciting things here like maybe this doesn't seem the most exciting one thing was that it had like really high value of information yeah um this was one of these things where like in you know a month i was going to be able to like significantly investigate this mm. and like figure out how good it was going to be because the answer, the reason is like I could just try trading, you know, and like see if that made money. And if it done, then like that's that, you know. Yeah. Whereas like politics, I mean that that might be like a fifteen year roadmap before I had like real information or or at least like anything close to complete information about like how it was going. So that was one of the things. It was just like something where I could like literally just take a month and like figure out like is this is this going to be compelling? Mm. Um. The second thing is that the numbers just seemed really big. Mm. And and this is one of those things where, I, I mean, I think you could say the same thing about Jane Street, right? About like, well, is money not what we need? And I think it's a reasonable argument. And, and I think the reason I was compelled by it was it actually seemed like the upside was maybe a lot higher. Yeah. And here's sort of like the, the ballpark calculation I went through. So, I mean, lots and lots of ways to do this, but basically speaking, first of all, how big was the, just looking at arbitrage for a second, just looking at cases where, you know, one thing was trading at a different price on two different exchanges. So you have like Bitcoin, you know, at the time I looked like kind of like late 2017 on, it was trading a few billion dollars a day of volume. On average, the spread between different exchanges was like a few percent. Hmm. Now it was really messy and like the data looked probably fake. Hmm. Like some of the numbers are just too big. Um, Like you see like 20% arbitrages and like, all right, that can't be real. But like, I don't know, who knows what the real number is. It's It's like, let's say we take this few percent like median divergence between exchanges or something Mm. like that, right? And let's say for some reason that it's kind of real or at least it's sort of like somewhat real, like it's not like totally fake. So 
what would that then imply? Like you've got mm. this, you know, few percent divergence. You've got a few billion dollars a day volume. Let's say we were trade 5% of crypto volume. Yeah. Trying to do arbitrage. So, so, so that means maybe $100 million a day of volume or something. And we were to make, you know, a percent on those trades, yeah. right? Like that gets you a million dollars a day of PL. And that would like double the amount of money in EA or something yeah. at the time. And so that would have been like huge if you could get that big. And obviously it doesn't prove you can get that amount. Like, again, the data looked like it might be fake. Hmm. Um, but that's, that's like definitely true. But it seemed worse, but, worth finding out. <laughs> worth taking a month to find out. Exactly. That's right. It's like, it seems like it's worth taking a month here to figure out whether you know, you could potentially double the amount of money in the movement Yeah, was effectively what it seemed like. I mean, I guess, so this is a good example where I think, I think the concept of key bottleneck is something worth keeping in mind, but it can be swamped by, by simply you having like too much impact on something that's not the key bottleneck. So you can imagine if you become a grant maker, you might spend your day trying to figure out, you know, which five out of 20 different grant opportunities should you fund? And that would, that would be great. But like, if you could make if you can make a sufficiently large amount of money only to give, then you could just fund all 20 of them. <laughs> and then you have done yep. like whatever good you could do with the, with the five that you could have funded otherwise. And plus like whatever you get from the remainder. So yeah, it can't be the case that only working on the, on the thing that like you identify as, as the most severe bottleneck at any point in time is, is, is the only valuable one. It, it has to be possible to dominate it. Yeah, I think that's basically right. It's, it's one of these things where it's like, all right, you know, maybe this sort of like key bottleneck sort of adjustment is like a, a, a you know, factor of, you know, whatever. It's it's a factor of uh, three or something yeah. adjustment on how good things are. But like some things are just more than a factor of three better than like what the sort of state of the art was thought to be. Yeah. I suppose, you know, at the time I was also a bit skeptical because it's like, so I guess I, I'd be willing to accept these arbitrage opportunities do exist at any given point in time. But I would have thought surely other people will come in. Surely this is going to end up being quite competitive. Yeah. And so sure, you'll make like, a million dollars a day initially, but other people are going to cotton onto this and it's not going to last. But it seems like that's not quite true. There are, there have been like ongoing opportunities to make substantial amounts of money in this kind of trading. Yeah, I mean, I had some of that intuition too, that like, look, even if these numbers are real, they won't last. Hmm. Seems like a good bet for numbers that seem too big. And part of this was like, yeah, I don't know, maybe maybe this is a thing which is great for a few months and then like we make $30 million and, and then it's gone. Hmm. And that still seemed worth it for a few months. Yeah. But- but part of it was also, and, and this was drawing on some intuitions that it sort of built up over time, um, this sense that like the world is not very efficient and like sometimes it's sort of hilariously inefficient hmm. and, and that there's a limit to how skeptical you should be of your ability to outcompete the world, even if it seems like the numbers are too big. Like even if it seems like sort of it's implying that you're going to make too much doing something like... Hmm there's a chance that's real and there's a chance that you can actually sustain it that like, you know, being first is worth a fair bit, right? Like you get there before the other players are, you sort of build something up, become an institution in the space. Like I definitely didn't feel like, okay, obviously this is going to be like a long-term thing at the time, but I kind of thought there was like a chance that we would be able to like a chance that we'd be able to sort of snowball intuitions and like context in the space and like to scale up quickly. And it had this nice property of being like a pretty isolated ecosystem in terms of market structure. Mm. Like if these are trade things that were primarily trading on CME, 
it would be a lot less compelling to go down this path because as soon as real institutions get involved, they have massively better connectivity than we do. Mm. And we're just like totally outclassed because this was like this weird isolated ecosystem. It was going to be a lot easier for us to build up infrastructure and the infrastructure other people had was going to be a lot less applicable. And, And so that also was a reason that I felt sort of less compelled than I otherwise would have. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes some sense. I guess it's a big question, how efficient is the world in general? Because that kind of high-level worldview factor ends up influencing a lot, like how skeptical you are about opportunities that you see to to do something incredible, like say, well, we're just going to arbitrage and make a million million dollars a day or, or more. I guess I think I used to, I suppose, because my training's in economics, I tend to come with this preconception that things are quite efficient because people will have taken most of the opportunities. But I've gradually, that view has degraded <laughs> over time as I've seen more and more people who I know who are like very talented, but, you know, not like the best in the world at everything. How, how often I've seen them just go and accomplish incredible stuff and seen them go from the stage where they're like, I'm not sure whether this is a legitimate opportunity to the to the stage where they've like kicked ass on a global level. Yeah. Uh, it makes you think that, that maybe there just are a lot of opportunities out there. It's weird because this is like one of the most fundamental properties of economics and one of the most deeply held and in particular, one of the most like, this is what you understand if you're an economist that you mm. don't, if you're not, is that if you think you see an opportunity, you're wrong. Like, It really is a core principle of it. And and I, yeah, I feel a lot more complicated about it now. Like, I definitely feel like it's a lot less ironclad than I used to. And I definitely feel a lot more like, nah, you know, like everything's kind of shitty. And, you know, you you can try and outcompete anything. Mm. But but I I don't feel like that on a completely kind of absolute scale. I like, I I don't just sort of feel like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm sort of skeptical of all claims, you know, that you can't outcompete. So I, I think it's sort of more like, what what was the way I feel? Like? I, I guess the way I feel is something more like you should assume that the real efficient market hypothesis is something more like if you don't try harder and do better than other people at a thing, hmm. then you're probably not going to like you know make money at it or make more money than other people would be making from it or something. Yeah, like, it's just like a little bit of a modified version of the efficient market hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's not actually in tension with economics properly under understood because I mean the actual efficient market hypothesis would would be that you exist, <laughs> that this stuff does end up gradually becoming more efficient because someone like you becomes super rich, yeah. like solving all of these arbitrage opportunities, but someone actually has to do it. And the thing is, like, yeah. the world is just changing and like opportunities are coming and going sufficiently quickly. Oh, and the number of people who are like really willing to dive in and take a risk and do something new like this is sufficiently small that your odds, if you try, are just not that low. Yeah, I think it's basically right. Yeah. So, yeah, what do people commonly get wrong about, yeah, why you ended up having so much success in this area? Yeah, I think that, like, well, I think for a lot of people, they, like, just don't have a model for how it happened. It's just sort of, like, this weird property of the world, you know? And and it's sort of, like, a little bit inexplicable or, or, you know, I don't know, like, it happens sometimes, you know? You, like, look at someone and they have incredible success. You're like, huh, that person is really successful, right? Like, (laughs) it's sort of, like... I don't know, when people think about like, why was Elon Musk so successful? Why is Jeff Bezos so successful? Most people don't really have an answer for that because they don't Mm. even see it so much as like a question they're asking. It just is this weird property of the world that they were. But, you know, I I think like what sort of is my felt sense from having been through a lot of it is something like it's, so the first thing is that to the extent there are multiplicative factors in what's going on in it, and I do sort of think there are like that, that like, you know, your ultimate sort of how well you do is a product of a lot of different things. One thing that implies is that, you know, if it's a product of like four different things, then in in order to like get anywhere near the peak, you need to do well at sort of at all of them. Hmm. 
and you need to be like pretty good at all of them. And that's sort of, it, it's a high bar. Yeah. And, and, and you sort of can't, you know, you can't skip leg day, so to speak. Like, <laughs> what you, does that mean? You, you know, so you can't be like, oh, I'm going to be really good at like some set of things and just ignore mm. the others. Like you just like lose that multiplicative aspect of it. And, and obviously some things are added if you can sort of, you know, ignore those. So we had to be good on like a number of different realms. We had to be like really ambitious. That was like an important part of it. Like it was just like so, so, so easy for us to fail to accomplish what we did if we just decided our goal was a lot lower. Mm. And in a lot of ways, just getting lazy when we started doing well and, and being like, ah, you know, we've done well, no part in, point in trying anymore. But, but also just sort of a lot of strategic decisions where it's like, you know, are we willing to like, take any risk in our trading like if the answer is no it's gonna like really limit the amount of trading we can do but it is a safer thing to do mm. and, and and that was sort of an example of like a question that we had to face and make decisions about and so 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 another part of this was just aiming high and like remembering that and and, and not so much aiming like high i mean aiming to maximize expected value is really what i'd say yeah if i remember it seemed like in those early days, you were often doing things that created some risk of going bust, but offered the potential of making many fold more money. And that was kind of your your modus operandi. Yeah. And I think like the way I saw it was sort of like, yeah, you know, let's maximize EV, you know, like mm. whatever is sort of the highest, you know, net expected value thing is what we should do, as opposed to like, you know, some super sublinear utility function, which is like, you know, make sure that you continue on a moderately good path above all else. And then anything mm. beyond that is gravy. And, and, and I do think those are probably the right choice, but they were, they're, they're scary. And, and I think even more so than like some chance of going bust, what they sort of like entailed was like that we had to have a lot of faith in ourselves almost that, that, you know, they, they really would have had a significant chance of going bust if we didn't play our cards exactly right. Like there's a lot of things that were sort of balanced on like a knife's edge mm. And, you know, any amount of sloppiness would have been pretty bad. And and, and so, like, it was, you know, I, I think also a little bit of a thing of, like, could we play this really well? Yeah. Just to back up and talk about the multiplicative model of entrepreneurship or productivity that you were talking about. This is the idea that kind of your output is determined by multiplying together a whole bunch of different factors, like how good you are at all these different sub skills of the thing that you're trying to do, Yep. which produces quite different results than what you get if you just if you're just adding together your, your skill in a bunch yeah. of different areas. But but well, basically, it means that you could be sabotaged by being extremely weak in any one area. Like if any of the if any of the things you're multiplying together is zero or, or close to zero, then the whole project produces no output. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, do, do you want to elaborate on it a little bit more? Yeah. And it, it's, I think, an important and a weird point. And, and it's not an absolute point. Like, I don't want to sort of claim that, you know, in all cases, this is the right way to think about things or anything like that. I think, I think what I'd say is instead is something like you should try and understand in which ways something is multiplicative, like hmm. in which ways it is the case that, that like were that factor set really low, you'd be basically fucked hmm. as opposed to like, that's just another factor among many. And so, so what are like some of those um, well, you know, one example of this, which I sort of learned early on is management. Hmm. If you're trying to like scale something up big, right. And you're like very good at the object level task, but bad at managing people. And like no one on, on like the leadership team is good at managing people. It just becomes a mess. And like, it almost doesn't matter how good you are at the original thing. You're not going to become great as a company. Hmm. And, and it's really hard to substitute for that. 
And it's like amazing how quickly things can go south if organizational shit is not in a good state. And so I think that was one example of a case where I sort of maybe originally didn't particularly think of it as multiplicative, but but I, I do think it, it was, and I sort of learned that lesson eventually. Yeah, that you know you can't you can't sort of forget about that. Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of other things like that that came up. It's a good example of the multiplicative effect. I mean, I suppose the multiplicative model is just kind of a model that can be helpful and it's partially true and partially not true. Yeah. But I suppose people have pointed out that uh, I think founders falling out or the, the, the original team that's like growing a project coming to hate one another is one of the main ways that a project fails. And it's a great example of like, it kind of doesn't matter how good a prototype they built or like how good their accounting system was or their ops was. If like the people working in the project just end up despising one another, then it's like, it's all for naught basically. Yeah, I think it's basically right. And I suppose there's a few other things like that. And similarly, if they get on really well, but they're like terrible at designing a product such that they're never going to actually appeal to customers, then the whole thing is for naught again. So you do kind of, yeah. I mean, it suggests that you kind of want an all-rounder or an all-rounder company or an all-rounder CEO is, well, at least that that's better than someone who's exceptional in one area and really weak in another. Do you think that's like a reasonable conclusion to draw? Yeah, basically with some caveats, like I think it's mostly right, but that... You have to be careful if you think about it that way, which again, I do think is sort of a reasonable way to think about it in many senses. But but I think you have to be careful that you don't, I mean, careful that you don't overdo it. And in particular, like, you know, so, okay, so, so you go for the sort of all-rounder approach. You don't want to be left with like a generic pile of mush, mm. right? You know, and part of this is again saying like in order to reach sort of the extrema, like in order to reach an extremely good outcome, mm. you actually need a lot of things going very well. And so some of this is sort of like, if you're not in that case, you just are not going to end up in the like extremely good outcome. Yeah. And like that's sort of how it is. And like, it's, it's sort of sad, but true. And, and so I think part of this is as much saying that as anything else. I guess a modified version is it's like on many, so hopefully the whole reason you've chosen to go into entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship on like project X is that you're amazing at some aspect of that thing. Cause you had like discretion of what you were going to go into. So why not choose something where at least you're extremely knowledgeable about the product or whatever. And then it's like yeah. having, having gotten like a really high value for that. Then on the rest of the stuff, you kind of want to like do well enough that it doesn't sabotage the project. Yeah. I think sort of something like that. And, and I think there are ways that you can try and cover for some of your, your flaws. Like there are things you can do to make it such that they matter less than they otherwise would. Mm. And, and you can be a little bit strategic about that. Now, it's always sad when you're sort of, you know, in like, you know, covering your ass mode, so to speak. Mm. Like that's not sort of where you would ideally want to be coming from. But, you know, I, I guess like some examples of that, that I do think can be helpful. Like, you know, one thing that you can do is if you choose an area where you are the first mover by a lot, mm. right? And where it's like a consumer facing business and where your like depth of product knowledge is not very good. Like you're sort of like, you can build an okay product and you're like good at corporate strategy and shit. Mm. That can potentially work because you, you might end up in a position where like just the brand value of having been first is worth so much that even if your product isn't the best eventually, if it's the best in an open area where there are no competitors, mm. that might be enough to build up a pretty big head start. Now, I, I, it's still, obviously, it's better and worth a ton if you can also be great at product there. But like that, that is sort of an avenue you can try and play. Yeah. So relatively early on with all of the, the crypto trading stuff, there was kind of a, a stage where a bunch of people on your team became kind of disillusioned and decided to, to leave the project. I guess, yeah, how did you deal with that 
personally? Because I guess that that's a thing that like many projects go through, but both ones that ultimately fail and, and ones that, you know, carry on and succeed. But it's like, I think often very difficult from a mental health and like motivation point of view to, to get beyond that. Yeah, it, it is tough. And it was, I mean, it was tough for, for me certainly to deal with that. It was not a particularly fun time, I'll say. And I think that like part of it was you have to make a decision about whether you're going to soldier on or not, hmm. or just like give it up. If you, if you are going to soldier on, if that's your decision, then like, great, do it. And don't sort of, you know, you, you've made your choice. It's almost like there, you know, you've made your choice. There's no point in like dwelling on the past, second guessing hmm. it. Exactly. Like, like, you know, if that's what you're, you're going to do, it's what you're going to do and, 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 you know, lean into it. That's like one piece of it. And, and at that point, like the only way out is through. Hmm you know, find the best paths you can. I I think a big piece of this also was like being in a position where I felt compelled that there was a compelling way through where, where sort of, I, I felt deeply like there was huge upside there and that we could potentially get there. And not that that's a proof that we would get there, but that, that we could. Hmm. And, And the fact that we could meant that there was still something great worth, worth striving for there. And, and I think like coming to a point where I felt like I understood what had gone wrong and what to do differently Mm. was, I think like really important as well. I think like without that, there's sort of this thing looming over you of like, everything will go to shit at some point and I have no idea why, Mm. which is not a good place to be in, right? Like always looking over your shoulder for like, well, I saw a bad thing happen once. Maybe it will just keep happening. So it's, a, it's, it's much more reassuring to have a model or a theory for what happened and what you can learn from it. And that makes it a lot more motivating to try to continue and do things differently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you think people underestimate how possible it is for a company to end up being a huge success despite feeling like a chaotic mess internally? I think it depends on whether it's sort of what a chaotic mess means exactly. Yeah. And there's sort of like one version of this where it feels like a mess because there's an enormous amount going on and like not all of it works. Hmm. But that, so here's like a quote that I think it was Elon had, I forget who, where we basically said like, you can, can kind of think of everyone internally at a company as like a vector in a vector space. So it's like, they got some magnitude, they got some direction. Hmm. And like, if they're just pointing in completely random directions, you won't go anywhere as a company. Like you're just hmm. pulling yourself apart. Um, if they're all kind of like net pointing in, in kind of one direction, right? That's when you sort of move quickly as a, as, as a company. And, and I think part of this is like, you know, well, if things are a mess, which internally, does that just mean there's like a ton of random vectors, but they're like, you know, all sort of working, pointing, hopefully the right direction. And if not, they're doing their side thing that might not work. And that's okay. Like, it's okay if some initiatives don't work. Or is it that like they're fighting with each other? Right. And that they're like pushing in opposite directions on the same project and can't get along. And it's causing tension and decoherence. Mm. And that second thing is real nasty. But the first thing is totally fine. Like it's totally fine to have 16 initiatives internally and just be like, yeah, you know, like our best guess is, you know, half of these will fail and the other half will be great. Like that, that can work. But feeling like, you know, there's 16 initiatives and like, you know, our net score is going to be like the number that succeed minus the number that fail. Like then Mm. you're fucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I was thinking like mess might be, it's like you're working on some project and say you're working on like some aspect of it, but then there's another part of the the project that's like not getting completed, say like, you know, the operation side of the delivery is like not functioning. And so you feel frustrated that 
it's not that people are like sabotaging the thing so much as like you need like A, B, yep. and C to all occur in order for something to use what happened. And A and B are happening, but not C. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And that can I mean that can also be a big problem. And yeah. And and I think the big thing there is, you know, there's sort of like more and less resilient versions of that. Hmm. Like there's sort of like versions for that where you know, you, you, you basically can imagine a version of that where like you have A, B, and C and you know, you just never do one of the important ones. Hmm. Because that, like, it just like you never actually net get anywhere as a company, and that can be really bad. Mm. You can imagine another version of this, though, where you have a lot going on internally, and it is like quite messy, and like they're reliant on each other, and they're not all perfectly timed with each other, yeah. but they're all making progress. And like, yeah, sometimes someone finishes one part a little bit before the other part would be finished, and it's like a little awkward, but like, whatever, you'll live. And, and I guess, like, in some sense, a big difference between those. I think of it as like, you know, well, l- let's say that A, B, and C are all necessary, right? Let's say you're in that world. Hmm. And A and B get done, and C is just not making progress at all, right? Hmm. What happens then? Like, do you just fail as a company? Or is there something that comes in and says, all right, we've done A and B, C is really important. It's now been a month. Like, nothing happened there. Let's figure out what's going on there and make sure C happens and like get a new team on it, get more people on it, yeah. diagnose what's going wrong, remind the people that it's uh, like, and, and I think that gets to like another thing that I've ended up feeling is really, really important for running a company mm. is like in the end, I, and I think like Holden was one of the people who like sort of helped me realize this. If you're like running a company and you sign Bob the task of turning the widget and the widget doesn't get turned, mm. it's like very tempting for your takeaway to be like, fuck Bob, you yeah. know, like, like Bob failed. And, and by blaming Blob, I've solved the problem. <laughs> exactly. Right. And it's like, all right, like, let's put aside blaming Bob for a second. And mm. like, maybe the blame is helpful. Maybe it's not, probably it's not, but like, let's even ignore that part. It's like missing the bigger picture, which is that the widget still hasn't been turned. Yeah. You know, and like, ultimately the important thing is it's my fault if the widget ultimately doesn't get turned and in like nothing else changes that and like i can do whatever sort of mental gymnastics i want but in the end i have to make sure the widget gets turned and like my strategy of assigning it to bob was maybe just the wrong strategy yeah you know and instead i should have assigned it to bill or jill or i don't know or two or people remind bob or <laughs> hide someone or done myself yeah, yeah or motivate or motivated bob differently um e- exactly yeah. yeah like who knows exactly what i should have done but like somehow apparently i was not doing the right thing yeah yeah it's, it's a very constructive attitude i'd love to do an episode at some point on how civil aviation became so safe because it's interesting from a risk management point of view but as far as i as i understand it one important aspect of it was whenever they investigate a plane crash or an accident or anything like that it's never acceptable to have the bottom line be like the pilot made a mistake Yep. because the pilot is just a component of the plane that yeah. breaks like any other component sometimes. And you have to like build the entire system around pilot failure, around human error. And so if the pilot made a mistake and it caused a bad outcome, then it's the system that's broken, not the pilot. <laughs> so you just like, yeah. you, you view people like a piece of machinery in this, at least in this particular context, not, yeah, not in a cruel way. Yeah, I co- completely agree. Yeah. So I'm not going to ask so much about kind of the recent FTX era because it's something you've spoken about on a bunch of other interviews that we'll link to in the blog post associated with this episode. So let's push on from that to from that backstory to talk a bit more like what things look like for you at the moment. Because yeah, what does a typical day in your life look like? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really all over the place. And like, 
just to give some recent days as examples, what did I do two days ago? So two days ago, I was in Munich at the Munich Securities Conference, meeting with random like heads of state and like people in like security roles in governments. Why? Talk about like... (laughs) crypto policy. Okay. I, you know, it seems like, I don't know, I could help them think about crypto policy. Maybe they could help us figure out where we should be. Like, you know, we could help shape policy in a constructive mm. direction. Like, I, I don't know. It's cool. sort of like, yeah, I don't know. It sort of seems like, yeah, worth doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, sorry. Sorry. Go on. So, so, okay. So that was, that, that was sort of like one day. Um, but you know, it's not like, okay, that's the answer. Like I, I like meet with heads of state on crypto policy. Like that, that's usually not what I'm doing. Mm. You know, so so like, what are what are other answers then? Well, you know, what do I have today? I have like some interviews. I like listened to Putin's speech to see what was going to happen in Ukraine. Mm. I have a call about a potential partnership. I have an all hands meeting, and then I have a bunch of like check in with this project type stuff. Like, you know, see what's going on with this project. Does it need help? Are there things I should be doing that would be, you know productive there. So that's a big piece of what I'll do is be like, all right, like we have this initiative. Payments is one example, you know, like we're trying to add more fiat on ramps and off ramps to FTX. Like, you know, what should I like, I don't know, let's talk to the people working on that. Be like, Hey, how are things going? Like, are there Mm. blockers? Are there frustrating things? Like, do you need help on something? Like talk to me about the progress recently. If there isn't much, like, where is it prioritized? Is it prioritized correctly? Do you sort of like generic project manager stuff? Mm. Yeah. So that's sort of like, is like another thread. You know, I mean, I mean, D.C. every month or so to like talk with lawmakers and regulators about crypto policy, basically. And that's sort of like a big piece of this as as well. It's becoming like an increasingly important piece over time. So, OK, so that that's sort of like is, is another thing. And, you know, it, it sort of like goes on and on in some sense, which is like random thing after random thing. Yeah. And rather than thinking of it as like, this is what I do. I sort of at this point almost just think of it as like, you know, I do a bunch of crap. Like, like <laughs> it's a bunch of random things is my job. Yeah. And it's like whatever is important today. And like that might not be the same thing as what was important yesterday. And that's totally fine. Is that problematic as a CEO or does it like if it's just kind of random different things all the time, I wonder whether that creates kind of uncertainty within the organization about kind of who's responsible for exactly what? It's a good question. And part of this is like, what's determining like what I do each day? A lot of it is like, what do I need to be responsible for? Mm. A lot of this is like, where do I see that there might be a problem right now or that people might need help or a push or that there's just like an incredibly pivotal thing going on somewhere. Mm. And like, I will often try and like jump in there and pitch in. And so part of this is at least an attempt to help the stakeholder problem of like, you have too many stakeholders or no stakeholders. It's sort of similar. (laughs) And like, make sure that we're on top of the most important pieces. Mm. But it definitely creates like, it's not like everyone knows like, oh, today is Tuesday. And so today Sam is going to be like thinking about X. And that is definitely a, a messy piece of this. Yeah. I guess one kind of school of thought I've heard about you know, what happens to CEOs as the companies get bigger is that ultimately deciding on personnel is like a key leverage point where you can actually get a lot of a lot out of a small amount of time. So kind of deciding who are going to be the leaders of the different parts of the organization. And so hiring, promotions, that becomes very important. And I guess like motivating the people in like the layer of the org structure below you yep. is super important. Is that kind of right that that's kind of that those two things are what you perceive as like core responsibilities? Yeah, and I think what I'd say is something like, Having good people is a big part of it, but having the right structures for them is an is a big part of it too. Hmm. And like, you know, we've seen firsthand that you can have great people in the wrong situation. 
and they're like net negative. Mm. It becomes like very easy to be net negative. And we've seen companies that hire 5,000 great people and are completely dysfunctional. And it's not because, oh, it's all their CIO's fault or something like that. Like it, it's sort of like very hard to figure out what went, went wrong exactly. But like somehow the like set of good people are worth a lot less than like, you know, the sum of their parts. And so I think some of this is like, understanding what is going wrong there sometimes what can we do differently and i think a lot of that is like how do people feel internally how are they arranged incentivization which is something you brought up is really important right like are they incentivized to do a great job Mm. you know it sort of feels a little trite but like that is legitimately a thing that is often wrong is that when push comes to shove you know they don't make any more money themselves if they do a great job (laughs) than if they don't so like you know are they going to do do a great job? job i don't know yeah 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 Interesting. I guess, so uh, I think last year or not, not that long ago, you moved to the Bahamas. Yep. And I guess a lot of people would think you moved to the Bahamas to get out, to, to get away from taxes, but you're a US citizen and the yep. US just taxes its citizens no matter where they live. So it's not it's not such a great tax dodge for you, at least at least not yep. for Sam Bankman-Fried personally. And I imagine for most of your staff, it doesn't really help. But you moved there, I think, primarily because it has clearer regulation of crypto assets and exchanges. So you had like a much clearer like legal framework in which FTX yeah. could, could operate, basically. Yeah, what's an unexpected, like positive or negative about about that move? Yeah, I mean, it's basically right. Like the big thing for us was we wanted to be in a jurisdiction that had a license for a crypto exchange that mm. like had a place where we could have license for our business and be regulated. And and the number of jurisdictions that have that is like shockingly small. Mm. It's like, you know, two. Um, I mean, it's more. <laughs> what's the other one? So, so Gibraltar has one. Cyprus has one, Singapore, Japan, but but many of these are only sort of partial licenses. Mm, okay. Like many of these are like, there there is sort of a license there, but it's like only license is part of our business, not the whole business. And doesn't license, for instance, derivatives, which is like two thirds of our volume. Mm. And so very few of them actually license like most of what we do. And that was one of the big things was, well, you know, how can we like get a license for like most of what we're doing? And our ideally all, this was one of the only places that had that. The, you know, other things like, I think the biggest surprising positive of it, which maybe I should have thought through ahead of time, but but I sort of didn't, was people like visiting us here, Hmm. you know? Like, it's like, if you're going to go on an expedition to visit someone. You could do worse than the Bahamas. (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty nice place to go, you know? Yeah. And and because of that, we, we we actually have a lot of counterparties who come in and visit us here, and it's really great. Like, it's a great way to get to know them. It's a great way for them to get to know us. And, like, overall, I think I'm just, like, super happy that we have that relationship with people. Mm. And I think it's it's only because of, you know, it's, it's, it's because the Bahamas is a place that people want to be is, like, why that's happened. And so I, I think that's something that I did not sufficiently anticipate, but that has been really nice. Yeah, I guess... On that, you've been offering or FTX has been offering a fellowship for people who have, you know, an interest in effective altruism. I suppose one way of thinking yep. of it would be a, a fellowship for people who plausibly in the future could receive some kind of grant from, from the FTX Foundation yep. or I guess work at the FTX Foundation at some point. You've been offering a fellowship to to encourage people to come over and spend spend a little while in, in the Bahamas and, and, and work remotely. And I guess trying to build some momentum behind having a, a hub of people who have an interest in these topics over there. One worry I have about that is like, are there enough people with that interest in the world to support another hub? We've kind of got a group in California and, and a group in the UK and then a few other uh, you know groups around the world on the East Coast in Europe and Australia. But can we sustain the Bahamas as well? What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, it's a reasonable question. And, you know, I wasn't originally sure what the, I'm mean, still not sure what the answer was. I, I think part of our thought was like, ah, eh, let's like start 
you know, talking about having something like this and see who comes, like mm. see, see if anyone comes and, it, and if it's like, there's no interest in it, then like that sort of answers the question, you know? Yeah. And, and that sort of means like, okay, yeah, turns out like there was not enough interest for another hub. Like we have enough hubs. Mm. Um, I think we've had like what was at least to me a somewhat surprising amount of interest. Mm. And it sort of made me feel like there are a lot of people looking for something else in a hub. And, and, and I, I, and so I think it's a piece of it. And I, and I think it's like different for different people, why they'd want to come. But you know, the fact that people want to come, I, I take as a real sign. So that's one piece of it, which I think is like pretty relevant. And then I think beyond that, you know, it is great as an opportunity for like us to get to know people in the community, for people to get to know us. And, you know, for people who are potentially looking at, at getting funded by us or working with us, as you said. So those, those are, I think, some of the other angles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to be too harsh on the idea. I mean, hopefully there'll be such growing interest in all of these topics and all of these areas that you want to give away grants into that, that even if we, if we can't sustain the Bahamas now, just give it a year or two <laughs> and, yep. and, and we will be able to. And I, and I guess you were saying that people are looking for something different. I suppose maybe what the Bahamas offers is that many of these people won't live there. So it's kind of a place to go and like experiment with something different, like meet very like a whole wide range of people from all, from all over the place. It's a chance to get away from like the ordinary, from ordinary life, I suppose. Yeah, I think there is something like that. And I think, you know, especially in the winter, a lot of people really don't like being in the cold for the winter. And so yeah. I think that's an opportunity too for them. Yeah. So yeah, in preparing for this interview, I got a chance to listen to a lot of your other interviews on podcasts and read through a lot of your tweets, Sam. And um, I have to say, yeah, like your style just remains to really let it all hang out there and just be same authentic Sam Bangman Free that you've been for the last 10 years. <laughs> and as far as I can tell, kind of not give a damn what people are going to think of the CEO of a company saying all of this stuff. I guess, yeah, did you ever seriously consider living otherwise than this? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think, look, there's a time and a place to be really careful about what you say. And I don't mm. want to like argue too strongly against that or, or make it seem like that's like an absurd thing to think. Mm. But, but I think what I'd say is like, you know, people will often decide that just by default, they should be fake. Mm. Like that by default, they should be someone that they're not. And, and I think that just like rarely turns out well. I think you can like look in politics as an example of this. Like you can see candidates who are really impressive people, but are like generally thought to have been sort of semi-intentionally fake, mm. you know, while campaigning because it felt like, you know, what one does or, or something like that. And it's just like people don't usually end up appreciating that. Yeah. Or people can see through it or they can smell inauthenticity. I exactly. Suppose. You can tell when someone is like really not being authentic and it's not. Yeah. I think it just like doesn't end up doing you any favors. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose as you're saying, there are occasions in which like being unauthentic is the right thing to do. You know, if if you're giving a presentation at a funeral and you didn't like the guy, then maybe you should yeah. just like, I don't know, say 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 the right words. But uh, maybe uh, like, yeah, did, did you did you just be your normal self in front of Congress, for example? You know, I, I think that's an example where like, I'm really careful about what I say. Hmm. I think I sort of approach it from the perspective of sort of like, you know, only say things that are true. Mm. And like that I believe in that I think are important. But, you know, if if at some point, I mean, to give a trivial example of this, you know, I I swear a lot normally. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, I'm just, it's a part of my lexicon. When I was speaking in front of Congress, I did not swear. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, and again, that's sort of, it's a trivial example, but like, sure, so what? Like, that's how things are. And, and, and I think like, you know, that that's sort of like one example of a way in which I was not just my normal self in front of Congress. Mm. But like in general, but on a deeper level, yeah. yeah, on a deeper level, I think it's like, you know, if your plan is to like be someone you're not, 
it's just like not exactly going to cohere long term. Like like any sort of a recipe for like ending up tying yourself in knots and like not not ending up where you where where you wanted to be mm. because you're just sort of like well, people come to then expect this false personality from you. Yeah. Uh, and then it's like now, so now you got to keep up this ruse forever, and it's like it's it's hard to hard to sustain. Yeah, I think he's exactly right, and 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 like you know, it's sort of like well, you know, you like argue from some policy you don't think is the right policy because you think it's sort of like the thing one does there, but now you got to support that policy forever, <laughs> and like <laughs> you know, eventually you're kind of going to be backed into a corner. Yeah. So I guess so. So you're still being authentic. Do you worry that people because you're kind of now a big deal? that it's going to be like harder for you to get the truth out of people or to like hear gossip about, you know, the latest research or like what, what projects are worth funding and what, what projects are not. Is that an issue? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's something that I absolutely do see sometimes where mm. like I will, I mean, it's like, you know, one example is I'm, I'm always worried that people will like not be straightforward with me about the negatives, mm. about the things that they think I'm doing wrong or something. Mm or that they think we're doing wrong as a company because, you know, they, they sort of like don't want to, you know, you get, yeah. exactly. And so I do think there are a lot of things like that, that are like, um, I, I'm becoming sort of like increasingly at least a bit nervous about, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I don't have like a, you know, and this is how you solve that problem. Yeah. I think like probably the the only way that you could that you can really solve it is to just have a very like long track record of demonstrated like good responses to negative feedback and to like using information yeah. that people give you very responsibly. I think it's probably and then, right. and, then, and then gradually people will come to trust you. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right to me. Yeah, it seems like it's an issue that all yeah almost all well grant makers have or yeah rich, rich people have <laughs> people start treating them differently in a way that slightly foils <laughs> foils their plans but yep. yeah so i suppose it's a good problem to have in the in, in the big picture let's talk a little bit about effective altruism as, as we head towards the end of the interview because yeah as as people will have picked up you've been participating in and, and following how the effective altruism community has been developing for for over a decade so i'm kind of curious to get your ideas on on how it could be better Maybe first to put a kind of a slice of positive bread on on a compliment sandwich. Yeah, what do you find most useful about effective altruism, kind of as an intellectual and professional scene? Yeah, I mean, an enormous amount. You know, almost the place to start from, I guess, is like I think effective altruism is great, and like it sort of has been like my guiding principle for for forever. And and so I think like that that is sort of you know that's just the first thing to say. I, I think like the community has also just done an enormous number of really good things. And I think this gets sometimes a little bit forgotten. Hmm. I think that like we, I, I make the same mistake as, as a manager is, is that I'll see like, you know, someone will do 10 things and I'll, you know, eight of them will create two will be kind of mediocre. And like, I'll see start at the eight great things and be like, great, no need to comment. <laughs> like all going well. And the two things that they fuck up and I'll be like, ah, here's like some feet, constructive criticism on those. And and from my perspective, I'm like, this is great. You know, they're like 80% good. And from their perspective, they're like, <laughs> like oh, shit, Sam hates me. He's giving yeah. me 100% negative feedback. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I think like as a community, we sometimes do that. It makes sense that we do that. But but, but I think it's a little bit too bad where, where we'll basically like, you know, do a lot of things well as a community, but not everything. And we'll focus on the things we did poorly because those are the things we can improve. And, and again, mm. that makes sense that that's what we do. But it's sort of like, ideally, we should also be recognizing what we do well. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth just, yeah, taking a moment to think about 
well, I suppose how, how any community or indeed any person you know, how they could be so much worse. Like think about all the ways. I know, right? <laughs> that, 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 it, that your relationship with them could be like terrible. All of the vices that they, that they could have that they don't, it's chastening. It could just be total shit. Like they could be horrific. <laughs> you know, think yeah. about how bad they're not. Yeah. Okay. So with that out of the way, what's a mistake you think at least like some non-trivial fraction of people involved in effective altruism are, are making? Yeah. So I think, and, and again, I you know, want, want to be careful about this. I do you think like by and large you're doing quite well, but what are, what are things that could be better? So I guess, you know, one thing is just shooting high and being ambitious. And, and again, I think there's something in general the community is good at. Like, I don't want to frame this as like, this is a weird weakness of the community, hmm. but but I think that like so much of the, so much of the values in the tail cases is in the cases where things go better than just well. And, and that really does incentivize you to like shoot extremely high. And I think that as a community, we're, we're good, but not perfect at that. And that will also often like, you know, sort of go for strategies that are like not the highest upside strategies mm-hmm. and are instead like safer strategies. And I think that, you know, and again, these are often things that we're even explicitly trying to sort of protect against, but that we don't do a perfect job of, you know, one example being like not framing things in terms of making sure that you have positive impact on your life. Hmm. Like, what, what, what do you mean? So, yeah. So like if your goal is to maximize the expected value of the impact that you have, hmm. then I think it implies interesting things about how you should behave. And like, in particular, like, so the expected value of like how much impact you have, I think is going to be a function sort of weighted towards upside tail cases. Yeah. That's like what I think my prior would be. And if your if your impact is weighted towards upside tail cases, then what's that probability distribution probably look like of impact? It, it, like I kind of think the odds are it has like decent weight on zero. Maybe, maybe majority, majority weight, weight on, on zero. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Or at right? least very close to zero. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I think there's really compelling reasons to think that, you know, the, the like quote unquote optimal strategy to follow is one that probably fails, but if it doesn't fail, it's great, you know? And, and, but, but I think that as, as, as a community, we like, what that would imply is this sort of weird thing where you almost celebrate cases where someone like completely craps out, Hmm. you know, and where like things end up nowhere close to what they could have been because, you know, that's what the majority of well-played strategies should end with. And I, I don't think that we, like, recognize that enough as a community. And I think there are, like, lots of specific instances as well where we, like, don't incentivize that. So, you know, I, I think that there are all these cases where I think that we give, like, not enough attention to, like, think about the high upside impact you can have. Like, forget about the common paths and forget about, even the probability of success for a sec. Just think about what would massive success look like? What would maximize your odds of getting there? And then evaluate that path hmm. because I think it's a, a pretty plausible one. And, you know, I, I, I think that, that that often does imply, I don't know, like, should you be trying to become a U.S. senator? That's like a question, right? That, that like you could ask that. I think the answer is like, well, I don't know, maybe, you know, it's, I, I actually, if you do the math, it seems like plausible, but, but if you do follow that, you probably, you won't be one yeah. like probably. <laughs> certainly not. Yeah. Right. But I think that's not a path that we talk about very much. I, I think people often just surround the odds of that to zero or something in their minds. And, and I think it's like not zero. Mm. And, and I think on the flip side, there's sort of too much emphasis traditionally on like making a bit of money. Like w- without having thought hard about whether that's what you should be doing or not. So 
so, you know, I, I think that's that's maybe like another side of this. And then the last thing is thinking about grant making. This is like definitely a philosophical difference that, that like we have as a grant making organization. And I don't know that we're right on it, but I, I, I think so like interesting at least how we think about it, which is like, let, let's say we like evaluate a grant for 48 seconds. And after 48 seconds, we have like some probability distribution of how good it's going to be. Mm. And so it's like quite good in expected value terms. Like, but we like don't understand it that well. And there's like a lot of fundamental questions that we don't know the answer to that would shift our view on this. And we think about it for 33 more seconds. And we're like, what might this probability distribution look like after 12 more hours of thinking? Hmm. And sort of like in 98% of those cases, we would still decide to fund it, but it might look materially different. We might have material concerns hmm. if we thought about more, but we think they probably won't be big enough that we would decide not to fund it. Yeah. Like a thing you could do is like write up- Save a, your time. Right. It's sort of like you could spend that time to do that. Or you could just like say, great, you get the grant. Because like we already know where this is going to end up. And but you say that knowing that there are things you don't know and could know that might give you reservations that might turn out to make it a mistake. Mm. But that from like an like expected value of impact perspective. It's best just to go ahead. Yeah, exactly. And, and so I think that that sort of like is another example of this where like being completely comfortable Doing something that, like, in retrospect, is a little, a little embarrassing. Like, oh, geez, you guys, you guys funded that. That was, like, obviously dumb. Like, yeah, you know, I don't know. <laughs> like, we, we I'll wear it. In retrospect. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. Yeah, we're slightly returning to themes that we uh, were, t- were talking about earlier. Over, over the last year, I remember two conversations I had. One uh, about this kind of risk and uncertainty issue about, you know, planning careers having impact. And one of them, I only realized very late in the conversation that the person had the impression that an important principle of like applying effective actual ideas would be trying to maximize the probability of having a reasonably large impact, which really actually isn't a, isn't a thing at all. Like what you want to do is maximize the expected yep. value, which might imply an extremely high probability of having no impact at all, yep. at least in areas where most of the impact is in the case where you do extremely well or where you're where you do extremely unexpectedly well. Uh, you're kind of at the 99th percentile or 100th percentile of outcomes. And there was another case where I think someone was uh, getting very stuck because they, they, they were considering lots of different plans. And like all of them, they thought that there was like a 20% chance of what they would do would be harmful. I was just like, I just think in, in the area that you're working, you're never going to get below that. That is actually like yep. pretty good. And as long as it doesn't have like a high chance of having a catastrophically bad outcome, like a 20% chance of having a like kind of bad outcome is actually just as good as it gets because you're working yep. in a very uncertain area and you kind of just then have to evaluate, well, is there like enough positive on the other side of, uh, of things to outweigh that? Completely agree. Yeah, and it's so, it's so easy to get stuck Yeah, in that case where you're just unwilling to do anything that might, might turn out to be negative. Exactly. Yeah. And it's sort of like a lot of my response in those cases is like, look, I hear your concerns. I want you to tell me in writing right now whether you think it is positive or negative expected value to take this action. And like, <laughs> if you write down positive, then let's do it. And if you write down negative, then let's talk about where that calculation is coming from. And maybe it will be right, but let's at least remove the scenario where everyone agrees it's a positive EV move, but people are concerned about some, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, an audience member wrote in this question for you. What are Sam's major disagreements with the EA canon? I guess in as much as we have a canon. Yeah. Maybe we um, should maybe we should say conventional wisdom rather yeah, than canon. Right. So, you know, I think like it's a good question. And many of these are like disagreements with either sort of like a little bit of a, of a caricatured version of, of EA Canon mm. or with like EA Canon circa twenty eighteen or something in ways mm. that I think have like gotten less caricatured over time. And so I, I want to sort of flag that maybe this is a little bit of a straw man that, that sure. I'm sort of like disagreeing with here. But you know, I, I think that one thing 
is I, I feel like in, in sort of EA Canada, like the, the like fraction of our resources that should be spent on AI X risk has been an extremely volatile number historically. Mm. Like, I feel like that number has gone from like zero to like 90% to like 70% or something like that. But like some people also think it should be 20%. And like my sense is that at least it swung a little bit too far in that direction at some point. Too low. Too high. Too high, okay. And to be clear, I think it's like plausibly the most important cause. I, I think it's like one of the most important causes. And like, we should be thinking hard about it. And like, funding anything that looks, you know, really good from that perspective. But I do think that at some point that sort of sounded like we should do that to the exclusion of anything else. And like, it's sort of dumb to work on anything but that. Mm. And maybe that'll turn out to be right. And I'm going to look dumb for having not thought that. Like, like, I don't know. I just sort of like think there's a chance of that. I also think that I'm just like not extremely compelled by some of the opportunities we've seen in the space. And that it's one of these things where like, I think it's incredibly important I think it's like not incredibly tractable. I think it's not incredibly untractable either. And it's sort of somewhere on, you know, somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the middle on that. But, but I also think it's not 50 times as important as anything else. Hmm. I think there are other things within a factor of 50 of it of importance, which, which means I think the tractability angle can, can potentially can be relevant, you know, compensate. Yeah. So if you were talking to someone who thought that it was more than 50 times as important, like what might you say to try to convince them that it's not? Yeah, so I think it's say like, what are the odds of AI X risk in the next century? Like, name that number. Hmm. And first off, that number is less than thirty percent. Then I feel like pretty good saying like, okay, how about like bio risk? How about nuclear risk? Like, here are hmm. other causes I think have more than a fifty basis point chance of of X risk. Yeah, and 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 that should sort of like. I think make it pretty compelling that some things are, are at least within that. If they say numbers like above fifty percent. I, I mean. I even think arguments that there are things above 2% are pretty plausible outside of AI X-Risk, but I'm also like skeptical of like a 90% claim about AI X-Risk this century. Like, or you might worry about their judgment, or you might then think you need to like be more humble about your understanding of how things are going to play out. Exactly. Like, what if we just, I don't know, get distracted from AI and we're just like, takes a really, really long time to get there. I don't know. Like, it's not hard to get above 10% uncertainty in something. Or another disaster preempts it. It, it, right, exactly, right? Like some other extras happens before it, hmm. you know? And so that's sort of another angle. And then the third thing I'd say is I think there are other things that flow through that even if you think that ultimately AI is all that matters, I think there are other things that flow through to it, but don't look like it. And I think like politics is one example. Hmm. I think like, you know, the executive- it creates like brand- both risk factors and kind of security factors that could affect how AI plays out. Exactly, right? And, and it's sort of like, I think those will have more than a 2% impact on like- how AI plays out. And so even if you think AI is ultimately all that matters, I think like things that dictate how society behaves in general are probably like more than 2% of, of that picture as, as well. And and so again, I'm not trying to, to argue that AI is not important. I'm just saying like, I think there are other things that at least are plausibly worth thinking about in addition to it. Or that funding something that's great in another area might be better than funding something yeah. that's like mediocre or like less than mediocre in AI. Yeah. And, and, and again, there's not like, I'm not saying like every area has this, right? Like I'm not mm. saying like, you know, guide dogs are like, if you have an incredibly... It's the best guide dog facility, yeah. <laughs> right. But but like things that, I don't know, if you sort of like take the best... The next few things on the list. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose, so, so an AI advocate, I think, would say that the thing that distinguishes AI is, so, so one, that it's far more likely to cause complete extinction because most of the other existential risks merely cause yep. like massive depopulation in reality and then you can recover. And then they would also say that the thing that distinguishes AI is that if we can get AI right, then it will, it will preempt all of these other things because we could use the AI to make the world safe. Yep. 
Okay, yeah, I guess, I guess we're running out of time, so we probably don't have time to respond to that completely. But yeah, what, what do you make of that? Yeah, I, I mean, so first of all, that, that first thing I think is like an interesting point. And I, I'm not mm. like I, I sort of I think that things that aren't complete extension matter that like I don't have the belief that like as long as there are 13 people left, we can rebuild mm. or, or even like a million not confidently. people. Yeah, yeah. I think like society might be fucked forever. I think that's a real worry. Mm. Um, but but I, I can't prove that's true. And like I respect people who like are skeptical of that view. I think the other thing I'd say is, yeah, you know, it's true that like AI could address other things, but other things could also, well, make AI relevant if they happen first. And, and, and so I think it's one of these things where if your AI timelines are like two years, then I think this does change the calculus quite a bit because yeah. like probably nothing else world changing, in, you know, will happen in, two years but if your AI countless are like 30 years then then i think 30 years is a long time and like yeah like that's enough time for like nuclear war to break out or something right. first yeah it matters whether ai is being born into a well that's a complete shit show yeah yeah an audience member wrote in uh, now that ea is less capital constrained thanks in large part to you among among a few others what are the barriers to making mega projects and other very good things happen and how can we get past them yeah so the first thing is that I think that while it is less money constrained, I don't think it's not money constrained. I think I'm like towards one one end of the spectrum. Like I, I think there's like billions a year we could spend well. But mm. putting that aside for a second, I think that, you know, another big thing is there is like founders of mega projects, like people who in particular will say like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be really good at it. I'm just announcing this is going to happen. I'm going to do it. And like, obviously I need funders and like a team and shit like that. But like, I'm going to be the shelling point for this. Hmm. Like I, I'm going to be the one who makes sure that this project happens no matter what, and we'll sort of take the reins of it. And, and I think that that's an incredibly important thing that we don't have enough of. Yeah. Are there any other kind of skills or areas of expertise that you'd be, yeah, really psyched for the effective autism community to attract or, or I guess uh, alternatively develop more of? I mean, I guess like entrepreneurial skills, like running an organization, but, but I think it's more you just like- You don't fully sold on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's like- you know, trying something ambitious is like really my answer. Like hmm. try to build something ambitious, whether it's a research model, a company, an organization or, or something else. Like, I think it's like a really good and useful experience. Yeah. Interesting. All right. We've, we've covered a lot. We've, uh, we've reached the ends of all the questions that I, that I thought we could plausibly <laughs> cover in all this time that you've given us. <laughs> Maybe just a final, very simple question for you. What is your long-term plan personally? Yeah. I mean, I don't know for the foreseeable future, like you know, continuing to to build out FTX and starting to build out the FTX Foundation and and hopefully do some some cool things with it. Yeah. What What about in five or ten or fifteen years? Could, could you see yourself having a having a kind of second second career? Uh, you know, I'm, or a third career, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Fourth, maybe. I don't know. Um, it's hard for me to know for sure. It's it's like so much has changed in the last three years for me. It's hard for me to project out that far. But I, I definitely think that at the very least we're going to want to get involved in a pretty hands-on way in a number of other projects. Yeah, yeah. Could you see yourself actually taking a run yourself and like deciding you want to, maybe you're you're done making money and you want to like take some money and, uh, and lead on one of these amazing projects yourself? I guess I guess you've got a proven track record, so it could, could even make sense. Yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me. And I certainly would not be surprised if I sort of put some effort on the side into helping one get off the ground. That That I think even in the shorter term would not at all shock me. Yeah, I'd be I'd be excited to see that happen. Maybe it can be like Elon Musk just jumping from project to, to project. <laughs> that would be an exciting vision from my point of view. All right. Yep. My guest today has been Sam Bankman-Fried. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Sam. Of course. Thanks for having me.